He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 10, 2022. Troubadour, welcome to the studio. Hi, Craig. How are you? Fantastic. Episode 126. I already know it's terrific because sitting there before you, Ari Armstrong. And he was great. You know what his job is? He's a public intellectual. Wow. Kind of a philosopher king. I don't think that's a job I ever would have applied for. He also homeschools his seven-year-old, and he's fascinating as hell. He is from Palisades, Colorado. You've probably been there. Been through it many times. Well, there you go. People drive that way, going to Utah, et cetera. But we had quite a week, Troubadour, and you've got quite a song. Ari Armstrong coming up. He's fantastic. And we talked a little Carl Sagan and astronomy right at the outset. I think of your song, Wings of a Rocket. Well, yes, Wings of a Rocket. If you were talking about Carl Sagan, I think his, uh, has some, maybe has something to offer. Right. And we talked about Ayn Rand, too. You're looking at the book, Ari Armstrong, Love for Me, which I is see this cool. Book that he wrote. What's wrong with Ayn Rand's objectivist ethics? And you know a little something about just, Ayn Rand. Just a little. I know about her, her um, you know, I've read I've read uh, Atlas Shrugged and um, let's see, and the other one. Um, I read it for a woman. A fountainhead. In fact, the a fountainhead. woman from Grand Junction. That, I sort of liked it. Yeah. What did you take away from Atlas Shrugged? I lo- I mean I read Ayn Rand when I was when I was a teenager. I didn't even realize that she was kind of the voice of conservatism. I didn't realize that she, I thought she w- it was just she was a novelist, right? It was and it was good. romantic. Yes. And and it was uh and the there and was, the characters What was it? Dagny Tagger? Yeah, it was Dagny. And yeah. she was exciting. She was exciting. And the, where did they all and, go to? And the Colorado. World, and the you world You weren't they even lived in Colorado yet. No. Well, I had been here. I'd visited I lived here. I read it. This conservative chick said, hey, I dig this book. And I thought, well, I dig you. So I read it and I thought, could use an editor, but it was interesting. And John Galt, Colorado, your thoughts? I'm, you know, in in many ways, I'm down with her writing. I I believe that society can get to the point where you're, 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 uh, you're squashing the, the entrepreneur with, with regulations and you know socialism can can uh you know can be a, a, a you know a detriment to to, to entrepreneur and to individualism right and you we know, know about that. it well you know about it lookout renovations is your day job just like craig silverman law is my day job yeah. and we both encounter it's nice to be unfettered yes but sometimes government regulations mess up the performance of your work right oh happened to me recently yes Yes, when a, it took a long time to get a permit, a long, long time to get a permit from the city of Denver. It was uh, something that really shouldn't be be happening, but that's another story. Oh, it's all about relationships, right? And uh, there was some love, romance in those books, but 
there's something about Ayn Rand. There was something about that old girlfriend, too, that isn't quite perfect. And Ari Armstrong has written his book uh, criticizing Ayn Rand, even though he loved her, too. I don't know. Maybe it's that phase we go through. And Right. And I mean, when it comes to politics, usually the truth is more in the middle, right? That's right. That's right. I think I think as I've gotten you know older and a little more nuanced, I can see that. But but uh, she certainly had a great point, and and I didn't really follow her as as like I say the one of the one of the leading proponents of conservatism at the time. But um, she was she was smart, and and it was it was romantic. I you know the. Um, the idea of a, of a, of an Amer- of the American hero, you know, entrepreneurial hero was 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 just interesting to follow. An American heroine. I liked Pamela Geller for a while there. Now I don't. She got into it with Trump, but eventually she went that mag away because she's way to the right of me. But she had a blog site, a website called Atlas Shrugs, and it was popular. And I bring it up with Ari how. I dropped Trump as a potential president when he belittled her right after she was a victim of an attempted murder. That's my background. Violent crime, you don't talk crap about it. It's like Club Q. You don't say the wrong thing like that that those victims were, oh, it was a a pedophile ring. And that's why, no, don't say something stupid like that. You don't disparage victims of violent crime. You know what I mean, especially well, he, in the days that follow. It reminds me of his comments after the the Paradise fires, you know, a few years ago in California. Already, yes. the, the embers were still yes. were still hot, and he was already laying blame. Should have raked the leaves. Yeah. Right, there's a time and a place, and yes. it's that Paul Pelosi thing, and why I think Elon Musk is just not a good guy. He revealed himself. But we try to be good guys. Let's bring it home because, you know, that's what Ari and I talk about. We're Colorado guys and we're trying to solve things here. And let's bring it closer to home. Family, friends, you, me. What do you have planned for my birthday this week? (laughs) Well, we're going to have to do something special. Because you're you're another Especially year, another the year week older. We, uh, after the week we've been through. Have you thought about that? Well, I, I I'd think, say we had our worst fight ever. I it wasn't a fight. It was more me observing a tantrum. <laughs> yeah, because I was so disappointed. Are you going to tell Dave the people? Gunders, Dave, are you going to tell the people what happened? I'm and proud let them to judge? do it. I, I'm an open book. I I'm a Denver guy. All right, so. I grew up with the Broncos. They're my earliest memories. And every Sunday I need to watch, even in crappy seasons like this. Now, let's get up to the microphone because you're going to be... Clear the lines. Clear the lines. All right. I want want some listener participation here. All right. All right. You have a lot of skills, but you do not know how to work a DVR, do you? Uh, I don't never have, recorded I don't have a, a TV show in your life because you just have not taken the time to learn. I'm a real time guy. Yeah, you can say that, but I've mastered that because it's one of the top ten inventions ever. Because I can work on my column on a Sunday morning during the Bronco game. I can enjoy the sunshine of a walk with my friend, and then I can return home and enjoy the Broncos. Have my cake and eat it too, which is why when we started that walk, are you hard of hearing? 
I'm Go ahead, describe your describe I said, that. I said, don't talk about out, anything uh, uh, on the football because I've recorded it. Which you know, because we've done this before. You were in the AFC Championship game once. I like walking with you, but not to the detriment of the Broncos. And then just tell everybody what you did. Well, I was innocent to start because I, I simply, this had been, this was some two and a half, three hours after the Bronco game. I know you record. So to me, ongoing games was off limits to mention scores or give any hints, right? It had been hours, Craig, and I said, what a heartbreak. Now, it wasn't, it, it, there was no ill intent, but you flew off the handle because I gave it up. It was a close game, crappy game, but a close game. Brandon McManus kick came up just a little short of heartbreaking. And I said, you just ruined my game. I think there should be a statute of limitations on these record on these you know Have recorded you sporting seen events. Avatar two. Why are you going to ruin the ending? I'm going to go and watch it. Yes, I will. <laughs> You're going to ruin no, the but, ending. No, but so we got mad. I got mad. I Have got you ever mad. seen me get that mad? A petulant child is we, what, we, I, is we, what we, I was we, observing. I walked away from you. We 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 terminated the walk. Um. Okay. And I I came and I watched the game anyway. And I fell asleep a few times because I knew how it would end in a heartbreak. Do you want to apologize now? No, I, as a matter of fact, I, I want to thank you again for that wonderful steak and that uh, the peace offering that you, that you, that you That's gave. That's a whole other to, deal. We're going to uh, get to that. Okay. I, and I think since you have a hard time, Craig Silverman, saying you're sorry. Okay. Not, not all of us find it easy to apologize, a heartfelt apology. But that steak was good enough. And so I do accept your apology. Now, how did the fight actually end? I don't know. You stormed away. I kind of followed you for a little while. And then, uh, I don't know, did we split? Did we, it seems like we, no, we wandered home together, kind of. We were pissed. You were pissed. We went to bed in our separate houses, pissed. I, I was so uh, how did it end? flabbergasted. It ended with a delicious steak. No, that's a whole different thing. I, I'm going to give you points off. And toward the end of the walk, you said, well, it was involuntary manslaughter. It wasn't murder. And I said, well, the body's still there. The Bronco game's still ruined. Point And point it's taken. a confession. Now you're trying to say I'm innocent when you already confessed to me? Now you're taking that back? My, what was innocent is the intent. Involuntary manslaughter. Is, I think you a good been, analogy. Anyway, so the bottom line, and this gets back to your song. Do you remember what your song is? Wings of a Rocket. And what's it really about? It's not about Carl Sagan and space travel. What's it really about? Because I know your library better than you do. Uh, the, the Wings of a Rocket, it's about a guy who wants to reunite quickly with his girlfriend. She's been gone. Because they've she, had a fight. She's been gone. No, they've had a fight. Right, they've and reconciled. somebody needs to make up. They've reconciled, and he's on his way. He's and coming past. On the wings of a rocket. Right. Because that's what friends do, right? They repair the relationships. That's right. So I called you and I said, are you ready to apologize? Do you remember that? And what did I say? Something stupid. <laughs> that we probably went on another walk. And then it was the next day when I had... Some sensational news at work, and there are weeks like that in the law practice that I said, hey, can I take you out to a steak dinner? You know what that's for, really? 
Well, it was celebrating an, a very a very handsome settlement on your part. Yes, but it I, also but it also it seconded as a heartfelt apology on no, your part. No, I don't think so. It's it's my thanks to you for participating late on Fridays after your hard week of work. But don't you see that the message there? Think about it in our personal life. Say we have a conflict with someone we love our spouse, our children, who should make the first move. It doesn't matter. Somebody should, and they should fast. If you really yes. love each other, right? right. And, In all serious. Now, this is the good yes. part. This is the serious part of this of yes. this conversation. Yes, that the lesson to be learned is try not to go over the edge with a friend, with a spouse, you know. take Get some perspective on things and understand when something wasn't ill-intended and be be ready to forgive. Forgiveness should be the should, should be the theme of this of this talk. Right, and moving forward. That's right. That's why this song is cool. And tell everybody about your beautiful daughter singing in the background at the end of this. You remember that? Um, the, yes, my daughters. They sang the kind of the little musical hook. The little. I think I might have been uh, short on horn players, so I got my daughters. They they came down and took uh, took that role. Remember what album? Um, let's see, Wings of a Rocket. So that would have been, jeez, uh, I don't know. Was it? It wasn't the last one, was it? Troubadour. Troubadour. It was Troubadour. Okay, I'm coming up with the next one. So stay uh, tuned. What's the title of the next album? It's unknown at this point. All right, maybe our last help me. album. Maybe you will help well, me. Maybe name it, it could be named Craig. Just Craig. Just Craig. <laughs> All right, we'll put that somewhere under the right, pile. You're going to have to write a song, one-syllable song, Craig. It'll be like Ben. Remember that by Michael Jackson? It's about a rat. <laughs> Craig. Okay, I'll start working Think on it. I'll start Think working about on, it, on the lyrics. I, I know how to repair a relationship. You know how you do it? On the wings of a rocket. By our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thanks, troubadour. Enjoy the show. Enjoy the song. Oh, one more thing. Can I bring this up to you? What is it? Because sometimes on our walks, you yes. say, why don't you stop talking about Brockler and Capless and those guys on talk radio? Well, I listen because I was in the field. I'd like to see the topics they choose. And it does get me a little riled up. And I know those guys. And I talk about these guys with Ari Armstrong and, uh, you know, they're fast pals now. I remember when they broke up their legal relationship. That wasn't pretty. But now Brockler's back advertising for Dan Kaplis. And you know what they say is ruining Colorado, among other things? Oh, I, have, I mean, any number of liberal causes, yes, I think. Yes, Democrats. But what's the number one thing? And you can follow it state by state. This is the argument Brockler made and I never really heard him go down this road, but it's Kaplan's road, which is marijuana. Oh. Legalization of cannabis. Now it's legal in Missouri and Montana. And Brockler went on and on how you can correlate that with how states just go in the toilet. I remember there being a lot of speculation at that time as to whether adolescents, there would be a big spike in adolescent marijuana use. And I just heard something on NPR like this last week. The, the, the jury's in on this, and there has not been any significant um, increase in, in uh, marijuana use amongst adolescents. People, right. people my age, however, 
are rolling are rolling them when when they get right. home from work. Senior yeah. citizens, yeah. yeah. So you know that's the reality. And then I hear the ripping of Jared Polis over this issue and everything else, and also on Phil Weiser. Of course, Brockler ran against Phil Weiser, and I know what it means to run, and it can get heated, but some of their criticism, Kaplis and Brockler of the left, the globalists, the George Soros types, and their support of Christian nationalists like Jeff Hunt and Lauren Boebert, I think, what are you guys doing? Aren't you smarter than this? But then I think about follow the money. And now I remember George Brockler had Joe Altman come over as a sponsor of his show. And he had a guy, I haven't met him, but he was good on the radio. His personal lawyer, when he got in a wreck, named Thomas J. Harding. And Thomas J. Harding was his guy, but now Dan Kaplis is everybody's guy. And I guess you got to go down that anti-cannabis road as well. Anyway, thanks for letting me get that off my chest. There's a soundbite to follow. Then there's an ad for Michael Bailey. Then there's an ad for my law firm where I don't say you need to be a person of faith. You know, when you advertise that your law firm's based on shared values of faith, really? Mine's on the law. And if you want that kind of lawyer, that's me. And who gave me the job of kind of checking Brockler and Kaplan says they go after fellow Jews like Polis and Weiser. Well, I kind of feel like a basketball team in that regard. And who else gave me the job? I got paid to do that for a lot of years. And those guys kind of gave me the job. They've got their media. I've got mine. And I've got a troubadour, Dave Gunders. Was that okay? That was great. And Shabbat Shalom, Craig. Shabbat Shalom. Who knew? that legalizing recreational marijuana would be the gateway, not to other drugs, but the gateway to progressivism. And that's what's happened to Colorado. Imagine, do you think we would be in the same place today if we had not legalized recreational marijuana in 2012? Would we have seen the same change? My God, we just legalized hallucinating mushrooms. Psilocin and psilocybin mushrooms. We just legalized that. Now, I know it didn't go live yesterday, but it's coming, folks. Raise your hand in your car. Keep one hand at 10 o'clock or at 2. But raise your hand in your car if you think more people taking mushrooms will lead to greater productivity, less mental illness, more law-abiding society, and better taxpayers. Yeah, my hand's not up. A Geronimo just raised his hand and then when i looked at him turned it into a head scratch i used to do that move in high school all the time g I, i've seen that i think before g got shamed into it g g was thinking actually shrooms would make me more productive and for whatever it's worth geronimo there is no study out there that says that doing shrooms will make your hair grow back that is not true now i don't know about your back but i don't think up top on the dome and by the way it's a good look i'm just saying if that's the reason you voted for it it was a mistake now, listen, we're going to cut away for a break, and then we're going to take Joe from Arvada. Joe's always good for some kind of conversation in here that's going to be partially relevant. I'm kidding, Joe. I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. I'm interested in getting your other takes as well as text start coming in. I'll read those, too. 303-696-1971 is the number, and I am interested to hear why you think it is that Colorado continues to slip down that conservative scale, and what are you seeing out there? Is 
Colorado savable? Is it even savable? Before we cut away for a break, though, I do want to tell you about a guy who is himself not only savable, but saved and a dude who can help save the rest of your life from an accident that wasn't your fault. Something where negligence, recklessness, in some cases, even intentional conduct by a bad guy or trucking company or some a drunk driver or anything like that happens and that's dan caplis daniel j caplis i know the j doesn't stand for justice but i think you ought to change his name to that because that's what he brings to the table
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead, who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. How are you, Ari Armstrong? I'm doing great. You are a podcasting pro. How do you do your own podcast? Well, unfortunately, I'm not a podcasting pro. I just kind of wing it and uh, do the best I can. You've got a great one, though, because I've listened to it. You are such an eclectic fellow. You are prolific and terrific. I'd categorize you as a public intellectual. Would you take that? Well, thank you. I, I do what I can, and I guess other people can judge me how they wish. Well, we do get to judge you because of your prolific tweeting and writing just last night. My gosh, the magnum opus about the Jeff Hunt controversy. We'll get right to that, but let's find out about Ari Armstrong first. Um, Where did you grow up and how old are you? Well, first, let me add, other people have different terms for me on occasion. Yes. so I grew up mostly on the Western Slope in Palisade. My grandfather, in fact, both of my grandfathers were peach farmers. So I spent time in the orchards, shoveling horse manure, pushing water down. You didn't even give me a chance to go for a pun. You must have been a peachy upbringing. I bet you've heard that quite a bit. Did you hear AI is now dominating pun contests, according to the Wall Street Journal? But we'll get to that. Let's go back to Palisade and your peaches was it a rural upbringing? Yeah, more or less. I went to palace schools in Palisade, so that's the side of the valley where the Palisade most, Elementary. It was uh oh, I can't remember the name of the elementary, but it's the school, the one Public elementary. Schools. Yeah, the one elementary there in Palisade, and then eventually into Palisade High School. I did move around for a few years. What is the nickname for the Palisade High School? Do you know that? The Bulldogs. Okay, there you go. Yep, still the. It's a difference. I went to the school right before they retired that school, and now they're tearing it down, and then they built a much nicer, bigger school down the way. But it's still the Palisade Bulldogs. About how big is Palisade? 
I don't even know. It's on the smaller end. It's just a small like five thousand people. It, it's such a weird with the valley, right? There's Grand Junction, right? Palisade and Clifton in between, and then on the other end there's Fruta. So honestly, I don't even know where all the city boundaries are. So the whole, so I don't know the whole. It's there, just Grand Magic Ju- County. It, it's kind of like it's we call it the Grand Valley. Okay. So it's basically like a suburb of Grand Junction. Half um, an hour to Grand Junction? Yeah, roughly. Once they added the uh, interstate I-70. My uncle used to, they used to speed race down that when it was being constructed, but then that came through. So now, now they're, yeah, it's a nice fast drive across the valley. You can See, make I, it. Yeah, I think you and I have similarities. You're tall. How tall are you? Maybe 6'1-ish. Okay. See, I'm shrinking, so 6'1", it's seeming tall. I used to be 6'5", but you're tall, strapping fellow, and you have a podcast, and you tweet all the time, you write columns, but you grew up on the Western Slope. I'm fourth-generation Denverite. Don't you think that makes a difference? Makes a difference in terms of knowing Colorado and caring about Colorado? Just uh, your perspective on things. Yeah, and I think so, and... There is a big difference between growing up in Palisade and growing up in this part of the state. Right. Um, my dad always jokes that over here in Denver, we're the back range and Grand Junction is the front range. But, you know, it's it's, it's definitely a mu- it's mu- much different in that, in that sense. But still, I've been in Colorado most of my life. I was actually born in Virginia because my dad was in the Air Force, went to Vietnam. I was born in an Air Force Academy, but, but I don't have any memory of Virginia. So. Are your parents still around? Yeah, they both live. My dad lives in Palisade. My mom lives in, uh, I guess it's officially Grand Junction, or maybe. What it's year did you graduate Palisade High? Nineteen ninety. Okay. Now I have you fixed in time. What did you do after that? I went to college in California for a few years. Where at? At Pepperdine. Okay. Which is near. I hear about Pepperdine. Near LA. It's beautiful, Christian. It is beautiful. Yeah, it is a. Christian-oriented university. Were you raised a Christian? I was. Conservative, Protestant. What does that mean? <sighs> what does that mean? Um, you know, I can assure you I don't know. Our, I went to the Palisade Christian Church. That was sort of my family church. And it was sort of just like a generic Protestant um, church. Though it did have some conservative tendencies, for example, there was once a debate in my church about whether Catholics go to heaven because of the way they're baptized. So my church was big into immersion. Like you got to be immersed once you're sort of a agent, once you have agency. So this childhood baptism, that's a bad idea in my church. Um, so that's a good debate. Who won? Do Catholics get in? Uh, I think the, the opinion was split in the church. There were some hardliners who were like, oh no, Catholics are out. The nice thing about the Jewish question is it's a no-brainer. No, they don't get in, right? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, that would have been an easier call in my church. I mean, you know, obviously, Jews can accept Jesus too. Yeah, I've seen that (laughs) on late-night TV quite a bit. And usually it's followed by a plea for money. In fact, Franklin Graham comes on for a minute-long commercial on CNN this time of year and says... Just recite this prayer with me, and you're going to get into heaven. Call this number, and uh, there you go. Now, that's a good sales pitch. I mean, just say a prayer, and you're in heaven. No wonder you guys dominate. And it's your 
you're religiously Jewish. Oh, and, I am. And culturally Jewish. Yes. So, Everything. I'm a Jew. Yeah, so I know a lot of people who are, have Jewish heritage, but they're more culturally Jewish. It's not so much the religious angle. So I'm always have a, it's always an open question, sort of. Not a lot of bar mitzvahs to go to in Palestine. No, not a lot. But mm-hmm. where where does the theology go? Right, that can take a lot of different right. a lot of different pathways, as it can in Christianity and Protestantism. Um, you know, there were some. I had some Catholic friends in growing up in high school. There's lots of Mormons in Grand Junction because right. we're so close to Utah. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty sure that I can get into heaven according to Mormons because I'm pretty sure I've been baptized by my Mormon relatives. That's a thing you can you can do that. So, you know, there was some diversity in over in that part of the valley at that time, but in many respects, not a lot of diversity <laughs> in terms of what you find in Denver. And, and at Pepperdine, did you encounter diversity? Well, you know, it's a Christian affiliated university. Know. I never went to Pepperdine. <laughs> well, you can imagine, right? It's pretty much drawing in students who come out of Protestant traditions. So, not a lot of diversity in that sense. Not a big Hillel club at Pepperdine? Not that I recall. Mm-hmm. So Jewish fraternities, I guess not. See, I went to Colorado College. That's why it's interesting. Was Pepperdine a good experience, bad experience? It was excellent overall. There was a great books program, which was really impactful on me. I studied economics, so we had a good economics program. And... Yeah, so it was good. Um, the Christian angle is sort of ironic because now I'm more of a secularist, um, not so much religious. And Pepperdine was impactful on me in that sense, just not in the way that they had anticipated. Learning, Pushed you away? In a sense, yes. I mean, learning about more about the history of how the Bible was written and the history of those movements. I began to wonder... Well, why is it about the way the Bible was written that lost you? Well, ultimately, the question is, is God inspiring man to write the Bible, or is man creating the God in the Bible? And if you read what the Bible says, it seems like it's more plausible to me that man is, you know, human beings are writing the God that they want versus God telling humans what he wants them to believe. That's how, that's ultimately what I Now, here's one tenet of my religion, and I'm not doctrinaire at all, but this appeals to me that man is created in the image of God. That's a Jewish concept, right? Genesis says, and I believe that. I believe looking at you, that you have a touch of God in you. And that's a nice way to look at people. And is that, does that fit into your secularist world now? Well, I would question whether there's a God, right? But I like the sentiment in the sense that human beings are rational. We have consciousness. We are capable of conceptual thought. We're capable. I mean, look at the telescope that NASA just sent up some months ago. We can take imagery from billions of years ago, light reaching us now billions of years later, and we're remarkable creatures. And in that sense, I I can appreciate the sentiment, even if I don't think that it's literally true. But the fact that we can have this conversation looking at each other right now is pretty magnificent and puts us above my two dogs who are sitting here watching us. Yeah, the fact that we are conscious creatures, we can think, reason, reflect on the universe. I mean, 
uh, last night or the night before, my family was out looking at the moon through a, through our binoculars, and you could see Mars right off the corner of the moon, and it was it was beautiful. And a dog can look up and look at the moon and maybe see Mars, but there's no th- reflection as to what this is. It's a moon is a satellite around the Earth. The Mars is going around the sun. There's none of this deeper reflection. There's none of this. How long does it take the light to reach us? What is our place in the universe? Right? They look at the moon and it's a, it's the it's just a light in the sky. Right, We're, but like how much you know? First of all, you're proving to be a public intellectual. Second of all, the fact that you knew it was Mars and my buddy Dave Gunders said it was Jupiter. Well, I'm no expert, but that's that seems to be the consensus that I was getting, that it was Mars. And I might have thought it was Venus. But the bottom line is that uh, we know names of planets. We understand so much more than our parents did, and certainly our grandparents. And I'd like to believe, and I think... I could get a stipulation from you that through our conversation and uh, this God-given ability to go back and forth, that some truths may emerge either to us or somebody listening. And that's why I love doing this sort of thing. How about you? Yeah, that's great. Did you ever watch the old Carl Sagan shows about Cosmos? No, unfortunately, I'm not science-oriented. I need to go back and and watch Carl Sagan. I know he was a Cornell astronomer and all that, but I I wish I would have studied that more. But it's just not my wheelhouse. I understand. Well, there's newer ones, too. They're on National Geographic and Disney+. Plus. So my son is seven. He loves this kind of stuff. But Carl Sagan had this sentiment, which is literally true, but it's also a nice sentiment, that we are made literally of star stuff. We're part of the universe. We participate in the universe. We reflect on the universe. And in this way, in, the, in these ways, sort of these secular ideas start to sound sort of religious. And in that sense, I think there's some legitimate overlap. Kind of gets us back to your question. Did men write it for the God they wanted, or is it divinely inspired? And maybe there's not an easy answer to that. But we can both agree that it's really helped structure the world the way it is now, for better or worse. Wait, what's what's helping? I, I mean, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, the oh, religions that have flowed therefrom. Oh, obviously, Judaism, through its historical lines, has been hugely influential on the earth. Yeah, our little brothers, Christianity, and then Islam, and it, it still keeps coming up today. That's that's cool. So you get out of Pepperdine. What did you do after that? And let me just add, right, I think it's very useful to learn the history of those religions, at least in general, because mm-hmm. you really cannot understand the modern world unless you understand some of that history. And even the literature, right? You're not going to understand a lot of modern literature if you don't understand a lot of the biblical references, the, these kinds of things. So yeah, it's, it's, I really appreciate some of, the, some of the history I got out of Pepperdine, Again, even if I don't think some of those stories are literally true, it's it's really interesting to know. And so I'm sorry, what was your question that you now, asked? Now, here's him? the thing. Last week, I had Adam Marez sitting in your chair, and he's really bright. He runs DNBR, All City. He's a podcaster, but he's brilliant. And he never really read books at Thornton High, but he got to Colorado College. His first class, they gave him 13 books to read, and there were only 13 days. And he learned that he loved to read books. Now, I went to Colorado College, and I read a lot of books, but I don't read them that much now because I'm a lawyer and I read other things. I think you read a lot of books. That Great Books program at Pepperdine, how many books do you read in that? 
Oh, that was some time ago. It was, it was not one every day because, but we were reading pretty hefty books, you know, starting with Aristotle, Plato, on up through. And you've kept it up, right? What have you read? Thousands of books? I don't know. I don't read as much as I would like. I mean, I'm, you know, I have a seven-year-old. We homeschool, trying to keep up with the column, trying to keep up with state politics. So like you, I'm reading a lot of things other than book the books that are in my pile. So honestly, I don't read as much as I, I would like. But yeah, I try to. I try How to many books a month? I, it, it varies widely. And honestly, it's been kind of a. One or two, five or ten. Well, I'll put it to this way. I probably have four or five books going right now, but I've not finished them in the last month. Thank you for the book you wrote that you gave me. Oh, you're, you're an welcome. author too. Tell everybody about that. So I think it was 2019. I well, let let me step let me step back for a minute, right? So I was pretty heavily influenced by Ayn Rand, the novelist philosopher, born in Russia, immigrant to the United States, who wrote Atlas Shrugged. And my dad was a fan of Ayn Rand. He was also a fan of Leon Uris, which is why my first name comes out of Leon Uris's novel Exodus. My favorite book, Ari Ben Kanan, the protagonist. And in preparing for this, Ari's never seen the movie with Paul Newman. What are you waiting? Oh, you ordered it. Right? I, I ordered it on DVD, so it has not arrived. Yet. Okay. So yeah, we, everybody we, should watch that. We ta- we discussed this briefly beforehand. But at any rate, my dad gave me Ayn Rand in high school and also a copy of Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose. So that was pretty influential on me. So for a long time, I thought that I, Ayn Rand's ideas were basically it when it comes to philosophy. Now, you know, when I first read that, I was fairly young and had not read a lot of other philosophy. So she can be very influential, um, especially if you aren't familiar with other philosophic traditions, at least often. At any rate, I decided that there were some pretty big problems with the way that Ayn Rand approaches ethics. So I thought I would just write about this in a book. So I wrote a book called What's Wrong with Ayn Rand's Objectivist Ethics? And as you can imagine, this has not made me super popular among fans of Ayn Rand. Um, but I think it's, I think my thesis is correct. Um, I'm looking at a narrow aspect of her ideas and just pointing out what the problems are. We're going to get to that because I like talking about Ayn Rand too because I had a Western Slope girlfriend who said, boy, I love Ayn Rand. So I said, I'll read it. And I sort of liked it. It sat in Colorado, Atlas Shrugged. I didn't go crazy for it, but I see problems with her. What was her original name? Anna Rosenbaum or something like that. And she changed it. She moved away from her Jewish background and... I have thoughts about that, but I want to know more about you at Pepperdine. When did you make this move from being a Pepperdine Christian to a secularist? Well, let me just back up one second. One sure. reason Rand changed her name is to protect her family in Russia. Right. Because, you know, as you can imagine, she was pretty critical of Russia. And so she just didn't want to be tied. She didn't want to have that tie to her existing relatives in Russia. Her first novel was a critique of the Soviet regime um, called We the Living. It's a great novel. It, in many ways, it's her best novel. It's her most autobiographical novel in some respects. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of depth to why she did what she did. So she definitely moved away from her Judaism in the sense that she was not religious. And she is a big reason why I began to move away from religion. So going into college into Pepperdine, I went to Pepperdine specifically because 
partly because it was a Christian affiliated university. But then, but going in, I was already having these skeptical thoughts coming out largely out of Ayn Rand. And so this was a big struggle for me in college. Was I a Christian? Did I believe in a literal God? Was I not a Christian, an atheist, agnostic? And so this was kind of a struggle for me for a number of years through college, even after college to some degree. And it was a big shakeup in my life. I mean, that was, religion was a huge part of my life growing up. I mean, we're talking, you know, Bible camp, Bible study, youth group, church every week. I mean, it was pretty hardcore. There were uh, these big convention, people would come in, preachers from out of state would come in. I still remember this one musician, he sang a song to the effect of, don't try to make a monkey out of me. And it was an anti, a song against evolutionary theory. And everybody loved it. It was pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, the idea is, I had a very religious upbringing. Uh, in fact, my mom went to, there used to be a religious college in Grand Junction. It's since defunct. But back in that day, she attended that. And lots, you know, lots of people that I was associated with attended that school. Are your parents still devoted Christians? Um, my mom's side of the family certainly is, for the most part. I don't know where my dad stands. He's less religious. Um, he's a Mason, so you have to sort of... I think you to be a Mason, you have to say that there's some kind of higher power. But I don't know how specific, <laughs> how specific that is. I mean, I can say there's some kind of higher power in some sense. So I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Um, that's so interesting. Let's get to one of the headline topics because I think it's so important. I know Jeff Hunt a little bit. I met him when uh, Mitt Romney was running for president. He was head of the Colorado campaign for Mitt Romney. And I like Mitt Romney, and I'd had a falling out with Barack Obama over some of his uh, friendship with Iran and that Iran nuke deal that I didn't like. In any event, uh, I, I thought that uh, Jeff was a normal guy, Jeff Hunt. I've, I've met his parents who were in the radio industry. I've heard him talk about going to Cherry Creek High School, that he struggled. He had a lot of drug abuse issues and self-esteem problems. We know marijuana doesn't make you smarter. I don't know anybody in high school who was a regular and known marijuana user that I thought, that kid's going places. Not a single one. Not in athletics and certainly not in education. Not a single time. And for all the people that are out there like, I know CEO that smoke, that you know exactly what I'm talking about, man. That is the exception, not the rule. He turned it around by devoting himself I guess, to Christianity and a better life. And now he's the head of Colorado Christian University or maybe the Centennial Institute, which is the political arm event. He took over running the Western Conservative Summit. I was frequently invited there, usually to introduce a Democrat or somebody who I had had on as a guest. One year, I, uh, I, I, I mean, there, there were so many years I was there and I was friendly with Jeff Hunt. I thought he was okay, but MAGA reveals everything. And uh, the Western Conservative Summit went full MAGA when Trump, I was there when Trump gave a speech there. It was lackluster, not that well attended. Of course, he said it was packed, et cetera. But everybody in the conservative world had to make a choice. Were they going to go along with Trump or not? Jeff Hunt went along with it. And now he's, well, I've said what I know about Jeff Hunt. And now he's gone crazy on Twitter 
And you and I are on Twitter. You are one of the most prolific tweeters. Jeff Hunt tweets a lot. I tweet when I'm not working, and uh, but not to your level. So describe your latest column. Ari writes great column. We'll circle back around. But just while we're on the subject of Pepperdine, it occurs to me, you've been to a Christian university. The Colorado Christian's a major uh, part of Lakewood and our community. What's going on there? I I don't know is the quick answer, right? I actually, I don't think I've ever met Jeff Hunt in person. It's interesting that he supported Romney. It's interesting how much of what Romney has said is held up so well. He didn't just support Romney. He was the top Colorado guy for Romney running his campaign here. And one reason Romney did not succeed more than he, more than he has is that he was a Mormon. So, right. it, so it is interesting because a lot of evangelical Christians are really not on board with the Latter-day Saints. I think we're supposed to say Latter-day Saints now, not Mormon. But And, and look at how well Mitt Romney as a person and as an intellectual is held up in his criticisms of Russia. Yes. And then he was he's been overall not perfectly but overall very critical of Trumpism. So And that's what attracted me. And by the way, on that same score, remember Hugh Hewitt, who's devoted he's Protestant and Catholic, if you listen to him and I used to, and I used to know him when he lived in Denver, but he was affiliated with Colorado Christian. He wrote a big uh Puff P's biography of Mitt Romney, touting him to be president, and then he went MAGA uh, as well. So I'm wondering, what is it about, let's leave Hugh Hewitt out of it, but Jeff Hunt that made him go in this direction. I know him a little, but you know him on social media, and that's part of knowing him too. Well, why? Certainly, Colorado Christian is a much more conservative place than other Christian institutions, including Pepperdine. The Centennial Institute is just straight up conservative. It's it's almost like a wing of the Republican Party in the sense that they host this Western summit and it's very embedded in Republican politics. So the dynamics of that, I don't really understand that fully. But certainly Jeff Hunt is has become part of the, I guess we can call it the MAGA crowd in Colorado. And how Christians And wouldn't you agree that he's one of the faces of Colorado Christian University. Oh, certainly. He is one of the, may arguably the most visible and important Christian intellectual in Colorado. So With what 20,000 Twitter followers. So what he says matters. And part of one of the most important Christian institutions in the state with Colorado Christian University. So what he says matters. And unfortunately, I think that Often Jeff Hunt is not sufficiently thoughtful <laughs> in some of the things that he says in social media and elsewhere. Um, so there's a lot of things. We can get into the, the most recent controversies with Hunt, and then we can get into the deeper Trumpist background. Um, do you want, the, the most recent thing is he tweeted something to the effect of, Colorado is going to hell because we lack Christian leadership. Now, what did he mean by that? So some people immediately thought, well, <laughs> does he mean that our governor... Jared Polis, our attorney general, Phil Weiser, and other elected officials are Jewish and they're not therefore not Christian. Now, that's a pretty obvious interpretation to make, I think, based on what he said. Um, he immediately said that that's, that's not what he meant, right? It's, un, it's a little unclear as to what he meant. But at any rate, that's, that's the most recent re- way that he got himself into hot water. Previously, he was accusing me 
and Megan, uh, what is it? Schra- Megan Schrader, Sh- editorial Schrader? Uh, right. director at the Denver Post. And people like Kyle Clark of Nine News and various other journalists in Colorado were being anti-Christian bigots because we were expressing concerns about local Catholics saying Catholic schools should discriminate against LBGTQ staff and students and families in their in how they ran their schools. And also then there was a charity in Denver, uh, the Denver Rescue Mission, yes, which was very overtly discriminating against LGBTQ people while taking millions of dollars of tax funds. So these are, I think, legitimate criticisms to be made of those sorts of um, stances by those organizations. But to Jeff Hunt, making those sorts of criticisms is a sign of anti-Christian bigotry. And so that was, you know, so he basically got himself embroiled into two fairly big controversies. I mean, they're big on Twitter, right? Most people don't read Twitter. But in the political world in Colorado, there were fairly big controversies within a very short period of time. And I'm partly just standing back and shaking my head and wondering, what are you doing? Is this really how you want to represent Colorado Christian University and the Centennial Institute as one of the, again, one of the leading Christian intellectuals in the state? Doesn't make sense to me. As So I've written a couple of articles about these controversies. And one of the things that I've tried to point out is that Jeff Hunt, as much as he tries to be the spokesperson for Christian, Colorado Christians, simply isn't. There's a wide variety of viewpoints within Christianity. Some of them are very aligned with political conservatism and evangelicalism. Some of them are more progressive. So what Jeff Hunt is essentially saying, he's also saying, so what? this is part of the problem with his no Christian leadership line. Well, look at the legislature. How many legislators are Christians? I don't know the percent, but it's got to be the majority. So in, in some sense, if you just look at numbers of elected officials, we do have Christian leadership, but they're not Christian enough for Jeff Hunt, apparently, because if they have progressive views on, say, criminal justice or um, abortion, then apparently you're not really Christian. That's the implication. I'm not saying he's saying that explicitly, but that seems to be the implication of what he's saying. Can I just say you dissected him so beautifully? Here's my night. Normally, I find a way to pirate the Nuggets game. I couldn't use my, use my usual methods on a Thursday night. They're playing Portland late. So I had to go to a sports bar to watch this because it turned out to be a classic game, and I'm so glad that I did. But on my phone, because I became a subscriber to Colorado Pickaxe by Ari Armstrong, I get this magnificent column about Jeff Hunt dissecting every aspect of the controversy. It's about 5,000 words. I loved every word. I like that you don't have a word limit because it was entertaining as hell, provocative, and I knew I was going to talk to you. How do you do that? that? That's just amazing. Everybody should subscribe. I'm going to put a link in my show notes. But uh, the bottom line and what makes this so good, we haven't gotten to it, is there's a nice back and forth. I engaged a little with Jeff Hunt as a Jewish guy. Most people realize I'm Jewish. And I feel like a lot of this criticism aimed at Polis and Weiser is full of anti-Semitic tropes. I'm not just talking about Jeff Hunt. But guys like Brockler and Kaplis always talking about their money, how clever they are, how they're trying to fool you. 
Kaplan said this week that Polis tried to stay away from Club Q. It is so much fun to watch Polis right now because every single move now, and most before, but every single move now has nothing to do with what's good for Colorado. It's about his presidential campaign. Now, is that why Jared Polis didn't make it to Club Q for nine days after the shooting? Which, and, and I'm continuing to follow up on that, and I'll be reporting on it, but, but think about how profoundly, stunningly, disrespectful that was to all of the victims at club Q, which start with the dead and their relatives and then the injured and then the psychologically injured. If this had been a case, Ryan, if this had been a case where a Republican governor had failed to go to club Q within hours, Oh man, it, they, they would have been impeached pilloried. They'd be banished from civilized society as they should be. When you have a mass shooting like that in Colorado, all these innocent people wiped out, the governor better be there and better be there fast, no matter who they are. So it is stunning is an overused word and, and really doesn't fully capture the magnitude of of Polis's disrespect to these victims. Why didn't he go? Why did it take nine days? Obviously, it, it appears that he waited until it would be out of the spotlight. I mean, there'd always be a story about the governor goes to Club Q. But if the governor went in the beginning when he should have, it would have been a big national story, particularly since he has been very public about his sexuality and, and has used that to his political advantage, most observers would, would believe. He had COVID. That's why he couldn't go there right away. He got there as soon as he was, as he was cleared to go. He's not running from it. And it's just shameful the stuff that these former friends of mine say about Wiser and Polis, and I've stopped putting up with it. I feel like a hockey protector. No, you're not going to hit these guys from behind. Every time you do, I'm going to call you out on Twitter. And, and I did with Jeff Hunt a little too, and then all of a sudden the guy disappeared. I got blocked by Jeff Hunt, and it's like, what? You want to have a debate? Flesh out that part of this story, Ari, and, and what it means when a guy blocks you. It, it's, it's kind of an affront. It pisses me off. How about you? You responded with 5,000 words. Well, one of the humorous aspects of this is that Jeff Hunt is on record as saying that it is criticizing the left as, well, they're not open to criticism, right? They're, they're closing themselves off and walling themselves off, and we need open debate. And then here he is. He blocks me and... Again, Megan Schrader, the usual suspects, Megan Schrader, Kyle Clark, other people, other journalists who have never even interacted with him. I don't know how many people he blocked, but he even blocked Terrence Carroll. You know Terrence Carroll, the former. Very well. He's what one a of beautiful the, columnist he is now. Some of the stuff he's written on bigotry is fantastic. He's a lawyer. He's a cop. He's a preacher. He's been my guest many times. He's my friend. And as you put in your... Magnum Opus, if you block Terrence Carroll, you, you need to re-examine your premises. I mean, he's one of the nicest people that I've ever met. Um, and w a long time ago, we worked on a political issue together, so I got to know him a little bit, enough to have extraordinary respect for him. Like, one of the most pe one of the people I most respect in the state. And so, but that's not good enough for Jeff Hunt. He's going to just block, because anybody remotely critical is getting blocked out. And again, I'm thinking, okay, you're making yourself out to be the leading Christian intellectual in the state. Are you really going to block yourself off from critical engagement with other thought leaders in the state?
including you, including many of the most important journalists in the state, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so has he stopped tweeting? Do you know? Do you have a burner account where you can follow him? No, I think he's still tweeting. He just blocked certain people. Um, so yeah, which is which was irritating because he did this right when I was writing this article. And so then I had to go, like that it was, it, it just made some more work for me to look up some of these tweets that I'd read and that I all of a sudden couldn't read. Um, but you know, that's whatever. I guess, he, you know, he can handle Twitter however he wants. Um, but But it's also sort of, he has this sort of um, complex where he claims to be so persecuted. Like oh, they all poor, do. poor Jeff Hunt. He's he's always getting the raw end of the I'm deal. I'm white. I'm Christian. I'm a man. I'm so persecuted. <laughs> and so it's like, seriously, Jeff, I mean, you can't even have a little rough and tumble on uh, on Twitter. I mean, I did say something like, I, I made a little barb at him, against him. I said something like, you know, the only, the only, per, the only thing oppressing Jeff Hunt is his own foot in his mouth. Which, okay, it's a little harsh, but I thought it was fair given what he said and given the thoughtlessness with which he said it. Um, but at any rate, you know. It, All right, it now is let's look behind the behavior. Maybe he has some bosses who told them, knock this crap off. Have you thought about that? I don't really know the hierarchies at CCU. Like, I don't know who he answers to exactly or or what their views are or who those people are. So... I don't know. It. I, I frankly, you know, I, I wish that there were some more adults somewhere sort Maybe of setting up some guardrails. Right. Maybe he's going through a personal crisis. I mean, I, I, I don't know the guy personally, so I can't speculate. All right. So. Now, here's another possibility. Maybe deep down, and I never realized it for a lot of people until modern times, Maybe he doesn't like Jews. You know, if you don't think Jews are going to heaven, and they really don't, just like you were taught, then they're that, not that much different than like a spider. I mean, you may as well just, instead of putting it out of your house, you may as well kill it or whatever, because that spider's only going to live for a few days. I mean, compared to the eternity the Christians get, Jews are more expendable. Have you ever thought about that as an attitude? Well, let me say, I, I don't know Jeff's mind. I'm going to try to be more generous sure. than that. Um, I would too. So, But there are people like that, and you know that better than anybody because one of the best podcasts I ever heard was you talking about the Klan 100 years ago in Colorado, and that's a big part of your brilliant piece. You know about the Klan. I've tried to learn a lot about it because I come from here. But you connected those dots. Well, How did you do it? There's an historian in Utah named Robert Allen Goldberg, still an historian there. Brilliant. And he's written two crucially important books, I believe, that I wish many, many, many more people would read. One of those books is a history of the rise of the Klan, particularly in Colorado in the 1920s. Now, there was the Klan elsewhere, but in Colorado, it was more of more vibrant movement than it was in most other places. Kind of created out of whole cloth. A southerner named John Galen Locke comes up here with a mission to create the Klan, and damned if he didn't do it by, you know, saying there's a lot of crime, we can help you, and these Catholics, these Jews, these blacks. You know this story better than anybody except maybe Professor Goldberg. Well, he's certainly the expert. And then there's other people who have written on this issue, of course. Um, and that... and. That's one of the things that impressed me is how many echoes there are today. Well, what's the problem? Purity of religion, religious purity. 
and people who aren't being sort of conservatively Christian in their behavior. We're talking about Jared Polis, right? He ticks two of the boxes that sort of drive some people on the right crazy. He's Jewish and he's gay. And he was recently married to his longtime partner and they have kids. So here he is, a very successful Jewish man, politician, who's gay, proving that gay people can be perfectly excellent, outstanding parents. And this is kind of an affront to some of the people on the right. And in fact, there have been not only anti-Semitic barbs, but anti-gay barbs lobbed toward Polis as he's been running for governor and for office. And while he's been governor. And if I hear it again, Kaplan say he's got his panties twisted in a bunch, all these things that he says, calls him a twisted sister. We hear that. It's not right. Have we heard from Polis on the mystery migrant? Tour? Oh, no, not yet. Yeah. Not <laughs> right. And so why not? And and then we have a text, Dan, why don't they put them up in the governor's mansion? <laughs> I just saw that. Yeah. And Nobody's we, using it. Well, Polis doesn't use it. No. It's not good enough for him. So, yeah, why don't they put him up in the governor's mansion? I'd love to hear his thoughts on that, but I don't know that he's being very high profile on this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, again, all comes down to his presidential aspirations, because in the presidential, you know, he is he is not running as a candidate of any particular sexuality. I don't think he wants to necessarily feature that. Uh, I, I think he sees the political landscape. He sees Pete Buttigieg. He sees his popularity, et cetera. I think Jared Polis is trying to run as as and, and please don't laugh so hard you puke. I think he's trying to run here as the moderate, so he's trying to choose that lane. Is that why he didn't go to Club Q after the shooting? Did he sell out those victims and disrespect them for perceived political gain? You're on the Dan Kaplan Show. So, you know, there are some of these echoes. And then the KKK was big on cleaning up crime. And, oh, my God, you know, the crime is out of control. Now, at the time, it was there were different circumstances. Then they were on the side of the prohibitionists. And they were really anti-Catholic, like virulently anti-Catholic. And they were spinning all kinds of conspiracy theories, false, which I could say is conspiracy mongering, about Catholics and how they were supposedly building these, these grand institutions to take over the government here in the state. A bunch of really absurd, spiteful things. So Catholics were their big view. But look, who was a lot of the people involved in in distributing alcohol were some of the Catholic uh, immigrants. So this was a perfect alignment of them. Oh my God, we have Catholics and they're immigrants and they're running booze illegally. And some Jews are involved in this liquor industry It's like a trifecta of evil there. And uh, his other book that Goldberg wrote, which was, he wrote it previously to the, no, it was later, but at any rate, it's about American conspiracies in general. And we were talking about some of these attitudes toward Jews. And of course, these tropes have been around for hundreds of years. And a lot of the foundations of these vicious, brutal, murderous campaigns against Jews in Europe was rooted in these Christian ideas. I'm not saying this is true to Christianity, but in fact, it rose in in many Christian um, circles, the idea that Jews are the Jesus killer, which is Bizarre in a way, because Jesus obviously was was Jewish, right? He, that's that's the whole thing. He was he was raised Jewish, and then according to Christians, came to uh, fulfill the law, the Jewish law, right? And yet, 
the story among some some strains of Christianity is that well, Jews were the evil people who killed Jesus, even though he was Jewish himself, and somehow they are still stained by that, and they are still to blame. And this excuses or rationalizes the violence that that Christians are now perpetrating against Jews. It was Jews. doctrine. It was Christian doctrine. Thank God, uh, a pope. Uh, convened Vatican II or whatever in the 60s said, hey, let's stop blaming the Jews. Personally, I wasn't there. I have an alibi. <laughs> you know, none of my family was. But it's kind of a lot of Jewish people killed. But to, again, to make this parallel to Denver in this area, 100 years ago, we had this virus of Klan uh, dominating, not just uh, Ben Stapleton, a Democrat in Denver became mayor, and he was a Klan guy, but Clarence Morley, a Republican, chief judge of the Denver District Court, and then he got elected governor 100 years ago. This is what was going on. The Klan went wild, and it mainly grew in big Protestant churches, right? South Denver, North Side. That's the Denver history. What do you know about that? Well, certainly it was a Protestant and explicitly anti-Catholic movement. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that surprised me by the book, is that they weren't, they were animated at least as much by anti-Catholicism as by being against Jews or black people. Though they certainly hated Jews and black people too. I've read some of the old newspapers. They were, they were literally, if you don't know the history, it's mind-blowing the first time you confront this. There were literally Klan-published newspapers, like the newspaper, it's a Klan paper published, being distributed. So I've read parts of some of these newspapers. And just the racist filth in, like, they have these comics. I put comics in scare quotes about, um, you know, the, the worst possible racist filth you can imagine is filling the pages here. And anti-Catholic tropes and, you know, you name it. You can kind of imagine. But if you, do, if you can't imagine, go look up some of these old newspapers and then you will have a very clear sense. I read the Goldberg book. You've told me it's online now. The times I've read it, I used to have to go to the Denver Public Library Western Reserve section. You couldn't check it out, but now it's accessible, right? If you Google Robert Allen Goldberg Hidden Empire, you will come up with a link. It's available in PDF hosted by the Utah University where he works. And yeah, I would recommend you download that and read and it. And can I link your podcast, two of them with uh, Professor Goldberg? Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, again, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm really advocating that people read read these books. Why was um, that period of time so important to you? Because that seems to be your favorite podcast. I don't blame you. It, it's fantastic. But why does this interest you so much? Well, it's important to realize our history and how bad things have gone in Colorado at times. I mean, we have not only the rise of the KKK, we have things like the Chinatown riots in Denver. I didn't learn about that till I was an adult. I didn't learn about the KKK being a prominent part of Colorado politics in the 1920s until I was an adult. And then there's, of course, the Sand Creek Massacre, things like that. There are aspects, in fact, Ed Quillen, remember Ed Quillen, sure. uh, former columnist, for the, Salida, right? And uh, he wrote for the Denver Post and for other publications. But he pointed out, this is where I learned this is where I learned this fact. One reason Colorado is a centennial state, speaking of Centennial Institute, is because there was before that an argument over whether black people should have the right to vote in this state. And so statehood was delayed until that issue was resolved. So 
it's really useful to know where people have gone wrong in our state. And it's, I think it's really interesting to see where the parallels are to today, because there are some, and people will deny it, but they're there. There's so much history I didn't know, like that uh, Wall Street in Tulsa, the Black Wall Street. I never heard about that. And then the Alamo. I've done shows on that. Forget the Alamo. I didn't realize that Davy Crockett and those boys were fighting to preserve slavery. Who gets taught that? We've been taught a lot of myths. And I've studied this clan history, and it, it, it really is disturbing. And I think it's important. What, what do you think are the parallels today? Well, certainly pockets of the right are very overtly racist at this point. I mean, the, the veil is becoming thinner and thinner and more and more worn. The, there's not even, it's not even hidden some of the bigotry against gay, transgender people, right? This is just standard dogma. This is part of the platform at this point, right? In fact, you know, look at all the many bills and laws coming, coming into to pass in other states, not in Colorado, targeting transgender people in particular. Look at all the vicious rhetoric against transgender people, including by, for example, Lauren Boebert elected to Congress. So, you know, we can talk about what caused the state of mind of the perpetrator of the Club Q massacres, but that aside, right, just the vicious rhetoric, and then all of the, you, you see instances of people, armed gangs, intimidating these transgender events like um, drag, drag readings yes. and such. And, you know, I've never taken my seven-year-old to a drag reading, but at this point, I feel like I need to just decide to stand up against that nonsense. It's like... What are you guys doing? If you don't, if this isn't your thing, you know what? Don't go. It's I'm a parent. I I can make responsible decisions for my family. I don't need your help. Thank you very much. So I don't really, you know, but so. I feel exactly the same way. And now we know historically the people who pick on trans or gays or the other, we know where this leads. And the same people who put the Jews in the oven put the trans and the gay people in the oven. We know how this play ends. They are kind of the canary in the coal mine. Why are you so uh, obsessed with trans and gay? Just let people live their lives. And, and we've seen anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ sentiment has often gone hand-in-hand with anti-Semitism which is, again, why Polis is sort of like the perfect lightning rod for those pockets of the right, because um, he takes both those boxes. And uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people just are not thoughtful about where this is coming from and, and what this rhetoric implies. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who have views along these lines. And let's face it, the trans, there's some complications to how transgenderism plays out in politics that are not obvious, right? Um, I mean, when I went to high school, I don't think I would have known what you even meant by some of these terms. Me neither. Right? Now, anti-gay slurs were common. Yes. They were ubiquitous. Yes. And talk about people going to hell. I mean, um, certainly being gay, anything like that, was contrary to my church's interpretation of the Bible. So it was just taken as a given that if you were gay and not repentant. You were, <laughs> you were definitely going to hell. And in fact, Jenna Ellis, the Trump lawyer, said something despicable not long ago 
to the effect of she thought the victims of the Club Q vicious, brutal massacres um, were suffering eternal damnation. Now, as a point of theology, that's despicable. As something to say after people are murdered horribly is, I mean, I just can't, it's hard for me to relate to the mentality that would say something like that in public following such a horrific crime as that. And here, Jeff Hunt won't even say whether Jenna Ellis is still a part of the Centennial Institute. What a coward. Gosh, you're getting emotional, and I don't blame you. While you get here, have a Kleenex. Let me uh, tell you that I know Jen Ellis pretty darn well. She used to be a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge on the radio, and I liked her because she would rip Donald Trump back in the day. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. She was a harsh Trump critic because she's uh, Miss Christian, and she didn't like his, his, his ways back then. Now... I, I don't know. You'd have to speak to her because I don't. What a huge Twitter presence she has. And she was part of CCU. And she called me as a lawyer. And and I think she had a harsh exit from Colorado Christian that they don't talk about now. And uh, Jen Ellis wasn't really thriving in Colorado. She couldn't get a radio job. She couldn't keep a job at Colorado Christian. But who could give her a job? A guy like Donald Trump and a guy like James Dobson. She worked for him, focused on the family down in Colorado Springs. I mean, you've already brought up the Club Q tragedy. And doesn't this go with what I talked to you about, Ari, that certain Christians say, look, these gay people were never going to go to heaven. It's a shame that they didn't repent before they were shot down uh, the other day in Colorado Springs. But now they're in eternal damnation, and uh, they should have changed their ways while they were on earth. It's harsh, it's terrible, but isn't that kind of Christian doctrine? Well, let me say, I don't think it's fair to say that's Christian doctrine. Many, many, many Christians disagree with that sort of thing. But About it's, who gets in heaven? That in particular, and many of these other issues, right? There are very, quote, liberal churches in the modern American yes. sense that are totally friendly toward LGBTQ Loving, people. wonderful. I um, agree 100%. But certainly this is a strain within pockets of Christianity. And you can discuss whether it's really Christian or not. Um, that's sort of a matter of perspective. So, uh, sorry. No, is I, I it, let me ask you this. Is it really Catholic or not? Because after the Klan kind of got suppressed in Colorado and elsewhere in the 20s, then in the 30s, we saw some conservative Catholics like Father Coughlin, Charles Coughlin out of Michigan. And he started this bandwagon against gays, against Jews, against people who don't believe the way we do. Another form of Christian nationalism. What's going on there? I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Christian. And don't we see the same alliances today, too? Well, that is one thing that I want to point out about Jeff Hunt is that I don't think he is anti-Jewish in the sense that some other Christians are. And there are these interesting alliances between more conservative religious people from various backgrounds. So who else was associated with Centennial Institute but John Andrews, who is a Catholic? And so you're already having an alliance there between the Protestants and the Catholics, which in some way, I mean, that's a lot better than having this um, 
this horrible antagonism between those groups, right? And then there's also this interesting aspect to some Christian theologians where the state of Israel plays into their vision of how Revelation plays out. Yes. And so Pat Robertson, for example, wrote books talking about this kind of thing. And so there's this strange dynamic where many Christians, American Christians, support the state of Israel partly or largely, or maybe mostly, because of the way that God has planned to use the state of Israel in his, you know, in this grand saga moving toward the end of days. And incidentally, by the way, it's worth noting that Lauren Boebert has explicitly, um, what's the word, wished for or... The end of days? Yeah, she the, end we're of, here. the end of days. It's end times. And, and, and how can that not be a campaign issue? If you think there's end times, you're going to rule and legislate a certain way that maybe we don't like. Well, that that's one of the things that scares me about certain strains of Christian thought as they play out in politics. Yeah, it's true. If you think that... And I saw a poll not long ago where many evangelical pastors literally believe that Jesus will return within their lifetimes. Okay, what does that mean if you think that the earth is about to literally end and or be transformed, however you would put it? Well, do you care about things like pollution, global warming, climate change, which might have effects in 100 years? Eh, not so much, you know, I mean... We were, you know, we're going back to the anti anti gay stuff. Look at how virulently anti gay Putin and the Russian regimes are. Right. And this also, there's a lot of thought leaders in Russia who just openly talk about how not only this Russian imperialism, but how it maybe it would be a good thing for the Earth to suffer the to go through this sort of mass. Um, casualty event or something because then there would be some kind of renewal after that which is along the lines of the end of days thinking but this scares the hell out of me because if you think that we're literally living in the end of days yeah you're you're not going to be very concerned even nuclear war well for a lot of christians they would see that as a sign oh this is just you know one more step in the coming of in the, in the restoration of jesus order on earth and to me this is like the catastrophic destruction of human civilization for thousands, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of years. I mean, maybe ever, but my guess is hundreds of years. And so do you really want people with the mindset <laughs> that maybe it's not such a bad thing if the earth is incinerated? Right. You know, like that's Lauren literally what they Bober. believe. That's literally what they believe. And that Jenna it, Ellis. Why did you get so emotional talking about Jenna and Jeff and the, and the stuff they're putting out there? Well, I just think it's so, and she's certainly not the only person who says things along those lines. I mean, there's several Colorado Christian leaders, quote, who have said things to the effect of transgenderism is part of a satanic movement. Like li they literally mean that there is a demon, Satan, a fallen angel of God who is promoting the LGBTQ agenda in Colorado. They say this thing, this kind of thing publicly. And just as though it's just like, oh, and, you know, the Broncos won the last football game right. or something. And to, I listen to these things and it's just, this, I, I'm like, how is this not, how do people hear this and just nod their heads and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I, I'm just, it's so alien to my way of thinking. And it's also because we recognize the warning signs going after trans, going after this. We know where this leads because we do like to study history. 
there's certainly some bad um, some bad signs. You also have in Trumpism this idea that, well, maybe we need to have a strongman takeover of the government mm-hmm. so that he can institute, he can push back on all the evil people out there. You know, the communist plots, the Jewish plots that are ruining the country. I mean, we can, you know, you can dig down the QAnon rabbit hole and how that has manifest in more popular lines of conservative thought. Right, but, and as we go down that racist timeline from the Klan to Charles Coughlin to thank God World War II where we thought we learned some lessons, but then the reemergence uh, in the Southern Democrats, Jim Crow, and in the Republicans, the John Birch Society, and you're familiar with this, and I, I should have been more aware because for years I worked with Peter Boyles. A lot of things about him bothered me, but he would always have on as a guest the director of the John Birch Society, John McManus, and they were fast friends and like, hey, we're not a bad organization, but I'm thinking, holy cow, I was just a little kid, but I think you were, and I think there was a lot of Jew hating involved in the John Birch Society. What do you know about that, Ari? Well, to get to get an account of that, again, read the Goldberg book, Enemies Within. It's about largely about that um, line of conspiracism in the John Birchers. And incidentally, the candidate, Republican candidate for governor, um, appeared in a John Birch Society Heidi event Ganon. while she was running for governor. Yes. After the primary, I'm like, again, I'm just like, what? What are you doing? Do you have no capacity for self reflection or how this looks to other people out in our? Out but maybe in, she listened culture. to Peter Boyle and said, "Hey, this John McManus sounds like a good dude. He's laughing with Peter Boyle's. How bad could the John Birch Society be?" And there, so the issue with the Birchers is there's a grain of truth in this. What they do is they combine sort of these Jewish conspiracies with this hatred of communism. Now, which is strange. I hate communism also, right? But there's a big difference between hating communism because of what communists have done, what Stalin did in Ukraine, the mass, the mass slaughter of various communist regimes in different parts of the world. Um, there's a difference between looking at the reality of communist regimes and saying, oh my God, the Jewish conspiracy is also generating this communist plot to take over American politics. Now, so I have a liberty, I know I also follow a libertarian online. His name is Matt Zwolinski. And he actually, he's a libertarian, but he favors the universal basic income. So recently he was having a fight with one of the libertarian party organizations and they literally compared the leader of Ukraine, who was the time person of the year, to Adolf Hitler. And he's a Jewish guy, a comedian, and a lawyer. Yeah, and, and, and arguably the greatest hero in humanity I love the guy. in our age. Yes. And they're comparing him to Adolf Hitler. When any rational observer is going to look at this scenario and know exactly who is acting more like Adolf Hitler. Hint, it's Vladimir Putin, right? He's the guy doing these mass murdering imperial conquests of his neighbors. He's the guy drumming up this intense hatred of Ukrainians. And it's just, it's just sickening. I, I don't recommend it, but you could listen to Randy Corcoran. You could listen to Matt Dunn, both on 710 Can US, just Butcher Zelensky all the time, Joe Altman on Conservative Daily. He's a pro-Putin guy. 
I think Lauren Boburn is pro-Putin. Marjorie Taylor Greene certainly is. There's a pro-Putin part of the Republican Party. I think they've been infiltrated. Am I way off on that? Again, it goes back to they're comfortable at this point with a strongman leader who happens to be extremely anti-LGBTQ. And, and in, that, in that depraved sense, quote, pro-traditional religious values, if your religious values involve, include bigotry, I guess you can make that case. Again, I'm not saying that's actual, like the truest form of religion. Um, but you know what they're laughing about in Russia and on Denver Trump radio, the Brittany Griner release. They say, oh, look, they left a military hero behind in order to get a black lesbian athlete out. And we got this top guy and what a bunch of fools America is, and they just are doing it because they're politically correct. I mean, have you heard this? I've heard a bit of that. And my understanding is we did release a bad guy. Yes. So it's a difficult... It is. It's just a difficult swap. Um, but Brittany Griner won two Olympic gold medals. She's but, a human being wrongly detained well, well, that's, because she's public figure. Yeah, that, that to me is the issue. She's a human being. She's a United States citizen. Period. Yes. End of story. That's what should concern us. All this other stuff is irrelevant. I mean, we don't defend people because they're the right skin color or the right gender orientation. No, we defend people because they're human beings with rights. Maybe you would say God-given rights. Jeff Hunt would say God-given rights. Well, where are these God-given rights if you think that people should be treated differently on the basis of their gender, gender orientation, sexual orientation, those things? Here's why I think you are so fascinating, because I always regarded you as a conservative, not a doctrinaire conservative. I always thought you were intellectual. That's the first time we've ever really met in person, and I, I just know your public voice. But I've seen it change. You are a Republican. I don't know that you were a big Donald Trump supporter. I don't even know if you voted for him. But now you've taken a turn. And you are wrestling. You're wrestling with a lot of things. By the way, do you know what Israel means? It means to wrestle with God. And mm. I, I like that. I think you'd like that part of Judaism, too. And I tell my kids that all the time. It's a struggle. It comes from... Jacob wrestling with the angel of God as he's about to meet Esau, and I'm going to change your name to Israel. In my religion, it's okay to wrestle about things like this. It's like the Talmud. Let's talk it out. Maybe some truths will emerge. And uh, I've read you a lot on Complete Colorado, which is run by the Independence Institute, John Caldera, right-leaning, and uh, other conservative Areas, that's what I associated Ari Armstrong with. And I think you're kind of in the belly of the beast like I was. But you're an outlier, and now do you feel comfortable there anymore? What's going on in your world? You were a Republican. Are you struggling with that? Tell us all the struggles Maggot Times has put you through. Well, I try to treat a political party as a strategy, not an identity. I try to remember that just because somebody is my friend or ally doesn't mean they're necessarily right. I try to remember that going along to get along or for money or for power, which is a lot of Trumpism, let's face it. There's a lot of people who were initially critical of Trump, but then when the gravy train goes by, it's easy to step on board and take your share. Hello, Jen Ellis. Keep going. So 
I like to think of myself as an independent minded person and not just getting caught up in this groupthink. So I started out long ago as a Republican. I had a George Bush sign, George Bush the first in my truck when he was running for president um, back in high school. My aunt was a Republican legislator, Vicki Armstrong. And so she kind of got me turned on to politics and Republican politics in particular. Um, side note, she, I, she served at the same time that Jerry, uh, excuse me, David Copel's father, Jerry was serving in the legislature, a guy I've also met really interesting guy. So this David Copel, Jerry Copel, because I've met right. both. Yeah, yeah. In fact, David Copel once said to me he had a Jewish father, Jerry Copel, decided to be a Catholic like his mother, who just passed away. She was a remarkable woman. Was it Dolores, I think? Anyway, she was a great lawyer. Jerry Copel taught the bar refresher class at the JCC. David Copel and I used to debate all sorts of things, especially about guns, even back in the 80s. So I know him well, and he said to me once, Craig, what do you care about these end times prophecies as long as Christians support the Jews and support the state of Israel? Why not just take that support? Interesting question in these days. But go back to what you were talking about. It is. So I started off Republican, but then, like I said, my dad gave me Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand. So I became two Jewish authors. And I, yeah. And I became more libertarian leaning because of their influence largely because of their influence. And so then I kind of switched into libertarianism in the early 2000s. And I was very involved with the Libertarian Party here in this state. I was on the state board. I ran the state newsletter for a while. And Were you I, in Denver at that point? In this area, yeah. Yes. After, at, yeah, after when college. When did you get here? 95-ish. Uh, I moved back from California to the Denver area and I've lived here ever since in the area, in Arvada. So 96, you witnessed my independent run for Denver DA against Bill Ritter. Maybe you weren't thinking about it much, but I have always thought about third parties, and I thought politics and prosecution are a poor mix. There are, there's an appeal to libertarianism. What was it that appealed to you? It's the idea, it's a very rational system, and it makes sense from the idea that people have rights and here's how their rights work out in practice with a special emphasis on property rights and this idea of limited government. In other words, it's the idea of spontaneous order. People can, can voluntarily associate to create a good society with minimal intervention from the government. That's kind of the idea. And so that's why libertarians tend to say that they're fiscally conservative because they don't want a lot of government running our economic lives and they're socially liberal because we don't want a lot of government running our personal lives. And so many libertarians, not all, think that abortion should be legal. I think abortion should be legal. Um, are critical of the drug war and align with aspects of the left on certain of those social issues and criminal justice You issues. said you, are pr you uh, favor abortion rights? Correct. I okay. think abortion well, should be, right. should be we won't, legal. We won't go down that. Yeah, I, honestly, right I don't now. know your views on that. Honestly, oh, I'm pro-choice. I always okay. have been for okay. a long time. So, yeah. And I've been pro-gay marriage. Even when I ran in 96, you can reread the articles, I was pro-gay marriage. I was running against Bill Ritter, who's a religious Catholic. I was for the death penalty. Uh, I argued that he was, and he said, well, maybe I am. But it turned out he wasn't. I know Bill pretty well, and he's a good friend again, etc. But back to you. 
in your political journey, you gave up libertarianism when, and and then you flew the Republican flags. Yeah, more recently. Oh, so I should mention one thing I did back when I was more Republican leaning is I interned for Hank Brown, who was then the United States Senator in Washington D.C. Wow, what year was and that? That was oh, I'd have to go back and look at the exact year. Okay. Um, you know, but between my into my transition into college, so how exciting. Yeah, it was, and that was really an eye opener for me for reasons we can discuss or not. I mean, there's a lot of no, lessons that I, that I learned. Go ahead, Hank. Fascinating guy. I've had him on the radio. He's uh, he was the president of CU. Go well, prime time. Well, one going. one interesting thing. A few years ago, I saw him again. At mm-hmm. at the time, there was an organization called Republicans for Choice, and the and he was there. And the woman who organized that has since moved out of town, so that's dissipated. But at the time, there was a vibrant community of Republicans who were saying, maybe we shouldn't be running on the politics of banning all abortion from the moment of conception. Um, and he was part of that group. But back when I interned for him, I'll give you, do you want three, I have three quick anecdotes if you want, that, that really illustrate some eye, a removal of the blinders for me. First was one of my jobs was to sign his name to a bunch of letters. So there's, at that time, there was a big machine. You push the pedal on the machine. There was a felt tip pin in it. And it would write, sign his name to a letter. And I thought, it, it, just that fact alone, right, is kind of just taking the mystique out of government. Oh, he, oh, Hank Brown isn't literally sitting around personally signing these letters that he wrote to his constituents. And more than that, there's a whole team of people tasked with writing the letters that then <laughs> the interns would sign on this machine. Now, Hank Brown, of course, would review the would review right. the context, right? The content. So it's not like he was totally dissociated from the process, but it's still like, okay, I see what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing Hank Brown did, which I still think is a good idea at the time, he tried to privatize Amtrak. And I thought, this is a great idea. It's obviously the right move. And of course, it was a total non-starter in Congress. So I learned a lesson there. It's like, okay, this isn't really about always doing the right thing. It's about paying off your interest groups, making these horse trades. And then, so that'll be the third, this will be the third anecdote. Did Amtrak Joe block that? I, I don't know the exact dynamics of the time, but you know, All right. you, you can imagine. Sure. It just, I can it imagine. was the bill, he, it just went, it was like, it's like speaking, It's you right. might as well go into a forest and yes. give a lecture. No one hears you. So one of my jobs as an intern was to look through the transportation budget. And they wanted me to find all the added line, item, line items that corresponded with state spending. So I start, start looking through there, and I see these weird entries added recently into the bill along the lines of, well, there's an experimental project in this and this district in somebody's state. And I started highlighting all these. And I get through the end, and I add these up. And it was miraculous. Every state which had a member in the Senate on the Transportation Committee had roughly the same amount of added spending on the transportation budget. And I thought, oh my God, I've just broke, this is like the story of the century. There's all this part being added into the congressional bills. There's one exception. One state got more funding. This was the leader of the transportation budget. Okay. So I'm like, wow, I've just, I've just uncovered this massive conspiracy to rip off the American taxpayer. So I go to my, I go to the boss, right? And this is, you know, conservative. I very much admire and respect Hank Brown, but I go to the boss of the office and they're like, yeah, did you look for Colorado's pork? They didn't use the word pork, right? And I thought, all of a sudden, like everything became clear to me. Oh, I see the game now. 
my job is not to root out pork and wasteful spending. My job is to make sure that we got our share for our for our constituents. And that was very impactful for me in the sense that it, I don't want to use the word cynical. Let's say realist. It made me more realistic and critical of the way the government operates because I got a very practical firsthand experience of some of the things that libertarians might express concern about. Any rate, then I was in the Libertarian Party. I would like to share one story Please. about a candidate because this was very impactful to me. And again, I think a harbinger of things to come. At the time, there was a candidate for U.S. Senate named Rick Stanley. This was 2002. And this is the same year that my wife and I organized the state convention in Leadville. This is the same year that Bill Masters, who is still to this day the sheriff in San Miguel County, was a member of the Libertarian Party. At that point, the only Libertarian sheriff in the, in the country. And he's actually still the longest serving sheriff in Colorado. Now a Democrat. Right? Now, now a Democrat. Okay. Yes. Now a Democrat. So at the time, I was working with him in some critiques of the drug war. Right. There was some momentum for the Libertarian Party then. Yeah, I thought so. And then comes Rick Stanley. And this is part of what I recognized, right? So there were some people, including me, including many other people, who were working to build this movement up. And then you get people who were observing this and saying, ha, huh, this would be a way for me to jump in for my own personal interests. And to my mind, that's what Rick Stanley and another, we can, we can say, another candidate were trying to do. Now, tell me if this rings, sounds familiar at all, okay? Rick Stanley forwarded an email, forwarded an email, written by somebody else, but he forwarded it to his email list that was just pure racism. Okay, ringing any bells for what, what modern politics mm -hmm. is sounding like? He forwarded an, another email in which a person was calling for street justice. In other words, armed vigilantes going around murdering their political opponents. Okay, do you remember what Joel Oltman said about Jared Polis? Yes, he needs to be hung from a tree or something like that. Yeah, he, he indicated that it would probably be a good idea if Jared Polis were hanged, killed, murdered. Yes. Okay, we're talking about people with large political followings talking about political executions of political enemies. What are we doing here, people? Why is this tolerate? Why do so many Republicans tolerate this? Why did Heidi Ganahl appear on a podcast with uh, oh, Steve Bannon and people along these lines? I am baffled. As a matter of morality, how can you do that? And as a matter of political strategy, I mean, how stupid can you be to alienate so many voters by aligning yourselves with these kinds of people? At any rate, back to my, my story. So Rick Stanley forwarded racist emails, these pro-violence emails. He had some other problems. He, so I was, I was so worried about this. I was working with another guy to try to take the nomination from Stanley at the Libertarian Convention. And Stanley won. And I was just so disappointed in my fellow Libertarians that they could... It's like we just... My family just watched Lord of the Rings, right? They're so focused on the ring of power and this possibility of winning an election and getting the power that they are willing to overlook so much. And I know that, you know, he was a minor figure, whereas Donald Trump was a major figure, obviously. What happened to him? Uh, Rick Stanley. He ended up not doing so well in the election, but then he ended up going to court over a misdemeanor 
Now we can talk about that. It was an act of civil disobedience, which I was, I was okay. Okay. Civil disobedience, take your lump, go do it and write your letter from the whatever Denver jail as to why you're right. He chose a different path. <laughs> he threatened the judge associated with that case and then was charged with, guess, <laughs> not a misdemeanor. Then he was charged with wh whatever that term is, um, interference with the public, mm -hmm. something along those lines, interference with the public official or something along those lines. And he was sentenced to prison for several years. That's what happened to him. And then, you know, I haven't heard from Along him. the way, was he making money through these emails? What was he, no. what was oh. he doing it for? He was he was a true believer. He was he a true believer. Thought he was gonna win the race. He thought that he was right. He had this like I don't know what he called it, but you know this basically this posse, basically like his equivalent like of the, the Trumpists, the, of the of the Trumpists who would um, go do his bidding. Right. And uh, so he actually ran a business in Denver. So he was making money off his business, but then okay. he started using his business. He would like fax all of his clients. <laughs> his political thing, stuff. And so I don't know what happened to his business after he went to prison. I didn't track all that. Um, in fact, I got, that's the first time I got a death threat was from one of Stanley supporters. And they sent me a message to the effect that because I was critical of Rick Stanley, I should have, I should be lashed such that my flesh was hanging off my bones. Something along those lines. You could tell I still remember it. You know, I, there's a lot I don't remember, but I remember certain things like that. Um, and so this to me was like, okay, we sh everybody should have looked at this and learned a lesson. We don't want people promoting racism, promoting violence. We don't want this strong man appeal where he's our guy come hell or high water. And, you know, they're above criticism. Um, and so then I'm looking years later, then it became unaffiliated after that because, you know, that caused a big struggle for me as to whether I was a libertarian, whether I wanted to be involved with the libertarian party. So then I became unaffiliated. Then more recently, I started seeing the rise of Trump. And I thought, surely a guy like Trump, a grifter, a perpetual liar, a liar, I was going to say liar. It's almost an exaggeration to call him a liar because that implies some standard of truth. I think with Trump, there's not even any baseline expectation of truth. So is what he says a lie? In the sense that it's not true, yes. When did you size up Trump? It was when he was first getting getting into the primaries on the Republican side, when I thought it was impossible, impossible for a person like Trump to win the, the nomination, the Republican nomination, much less the presidency. Because who in their right mind could support a person like Donald Trump? And at the time, many of the Republican leaders were saying the same thing, who that since got on the Trump train. See, that's why you're more intellectual than most, because you recognized his deficiencies. And maybe because I was working at 710 KNUS, I overlooked things that I should not have. And I can tell you that as the process started and I wanted to winnow who was possible presidential timber, first guy I eliminated was Donald Trump. And I did it because Pam Geller who I knew, who actually I've been at events at Colorado Christian with her. She was against the Iran nuke deal, and I found common cause with her on some stuff. I need to reexamine myself about that. But remember, she was in Plano, Texas, and a guy drove from Arizona to kill her at a conference where they were uh, drawing uh, pictures of Muhammad. And uh, somebody was following the killer, and thank God there was a shootout outside the venue. I th think some people got hurt, maybe killed. 
But Pam Geller was victim of attempted murder. And then the next day, Donald Trump went on with uh, Megyn Kelly and said, she's a show-off. Look what she was doing. There's Why would she uh, incite those people that way? And I thought, wow, these people are just victims of attempted murder, and that's your reaction toward the victim. Same sort of visceral reaction I had when Paul Pelosi got attacked and people started attacking him. That's not the right time. I was a prosecutor. If somebody's a victim of a violent crime like attempted murder, you don't belittle them the day after Donald Trump did that. I said, I'm done with him. I said it on the radio. And then the guy's the great maker-upper, and he said some things, and I put him back in the mix. Anyway, that's my own shortcoming. And I'm sorry I I went that direction, but let's do get to Trump because you said something really interesting about how many people do these sorts of things for money, and you called him a grifter. What what do you think is up with Trump? Is he doing it for money, power, or is he just mishugana now? Do you know that Yiddish word? Crazy, mishugana? It it does seem like power lust is the central thing. Like he just, he likes, it is not so much power for power's sake, it's like the attention. I think yes. it's basically narcissism. Yes. Like he and wants... I mean, let's face it, you and I, we like attention. You, Nobody makes you tweet. Nobody makes you to do a podcast. We like to express ourselves. But some people like fame in the worst way. This guy does. He needs it. He craves it every friggin' day. Well, I have to say, I'm proud of how I foresaw what Trump would become. And I can look myself in the mirror and say, yeah, you made the right decisions. The only exception is even I did not anticipate how bad Trump would get. I, not in a million years, would I have predicted the January 6th Capitol invasion back in 2015, 2016. That was a shock to me. And so Trump was even worse than I thought. But on the whole, right, I accurately judged Trump's character or lack thereof. I accurately saw him as a disaster for the country and the Republican Party. And I can look myself in the mirror. And I wonder how many of the Trumpists in 10 or 20 years are going to be able to look their, look their grandchildren in the eye and say, yeah, I was a big Trumpist back in the day. I pulled some punches, and I regret that. What about you? Did you pull punches? Aren't you a featured columnist to Complete Colorado, which is sort of the belly of the beast? They're pro-MAGA. And did you find yourself... Pulling your punches on Trump? Well, there in particular, I write about state issues. So that, you know, and I don't even, I don't remember when I started writing for them after that anyway. So at the time, I feel like I was very critical, not for them, but just writing on my own, in my own publications. I I was, if you go back and look what I wrote about Trump, I wrote a lot about why Trump was not the right guy to be president. Did you vote for Hillary? Um, I... I, I can't remember if I abstained or voted for minor party. I, oh, you know, I think I, uh, who's the the guy from Utah? Uh, Evan McMullen. Yeah, I believe, wasn't he on the ballot? Yes. Okay, I voted for him, I and think. And Gary Johnson was on the ballot. Um, but yeah, you know, at that point, well, that's one mistake, right? I, going back, I think it's Hillary. Not, I've, I've freaking voted for Trump. And I'm embarrassed about it because I didn't like Hillary Clinton. I thought she was a little corrupt, too corrupt for me. Oh, my goodness. Um, I am no fan of the Clintons or Hillary Clinton. So it was a tough choice. I mean, this is a – I mean, hello, America. Maybe we can do better. (laughs) 
<laughs> Can you Trump forgive me for versus, voting Trump versus in Clinton. 2016? I'll put it this way. I understand, given that choice, I understand the reasoning. I do not understand supporting Trump in the Republican primary. If you were against Trump in the primary and then said, well, he's a lesser of evils against Hillary Clinton, I at least understand that as a position. I do not understand being, you know, getting on the Trump train and driving him through the convention, you know, through the assembly process, through the primaries and making him, the, making people have to face that choice, right? Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. I don't know if you make sin, but my sin of voting for him in 2016, I voted for Biden in 2020. What do you make of people who voted for Trump in 2020? I mean, that after he has a established record of sucking up to the most brutal mass murderers of our age, the dictators of North Korea and Russia, after he has a history of screwing over Ukraine. I mean, look at that in history. How is history going to look at Impeachment that? Impeachment number one. It was valid. Um, he should have been removed. It was horrible. It was the furthest thing from a perfect call. It was a shakedown. And, and then looking, yeah, and looking at how he spent tax money on his own establishments, yes. things like this. Just this just this basic level corruption. Charlottesville. Which was so there was so much going on. That's that kind Helsinki. of stuff didn't even make the news hardly. Um I mean I just I'm trying to forgive myself, but I'm also trying to wrap my head around people like Christy Caper and Ross Kaminsky who had the good judgment, I think, to vote for Evan McMullen like you in twenty sixteen. And then they publicly supported voting for Trump in twenty twenty. And I'm thinking Wow, I know you two. What are you doing? And that, yeah, I don't understand supporting Trump. Well, especially after, um, yeah, after watching what he did for, for his time in office. Well, for Krista Caper, um, she's pro-life. So maybe that's it. And with Ross, he's big guns. And maybe that's why he, he liked that NRA. I, I don't know. And Ross Kaminsky has blocked me now, too, because... I wondered why he didn't put Adam Frisch on more and why he supported Lauren Boebert and why wouldn't he vote for a nice Jewish guy like Frisch over a Christian nationalist like Boebert and he has a statewide audience and she won by a few votes and maybe you would have made a difference, Ross. I saw where he had uh, Adam Frisch on again, which is good. And now they're friends and maybe next time he'll make the right decision, but... Um, back to you, Ari Armstrong, because uh, you're going through a struggle now. And uh, what about the Independence Institute, for example? They run Complete Colorado. Are you buddies with John Caldera? I know him, and I'm friendly with him. And I disagree with him. I, I agree with him often and disagree with him sometimes. I just brought up big guns. And to me, I used to like the Independence Institute. I have my libertarian leanings. I thought they were like that, live and let live, just don't hurt other people. But they're support of big guns, and they get huge money from the gun industry, don't they? Doesn't that compromise a group like that? And I'm so disappointed that the Independence Institute, with its power, doesn't come out more forcefully against MAGA. What's going on there? You're in those circles. Um. I'm at the peripheral of those rules, okay? So I write a column for Complete Colorado on a contract basis. So I do get paid indirectly from the Independence Institute for that. Um, so I'm not privy to some of these internal machinations. But I think I can talk about this because they've talked about it publicly. Um, I think that they're trying to just make nice with everyone. 
So when a lot of the Republicans are MAGA, are Trumpists, um, I think maybe it's easier not to make a lot of waves, especially when, you know, I mean, let's they're nonpartisan in the same sense that progress now is nonpartisan, right? Right. But they have an interest in getting Republicans elected in terms of their policy agenda. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And maybe you've seen things that I haven't seen, but I've never taken the Independence Institute as sort of on the Trump train. Um, I just see people affiliated with them like Caldera and Mandy Connell and Ross Kaminsky say, I'm going to vote for uh, Donald Trump. And, and Joe Biden is so terrible. We have no alternative. And I'm thinking, Biden is terrible? Trump's the the bad guy. And what I've increasingly come to call him is a fascist. And I'm just starting to learn about fascism in my advanced age. You'd think I would know more, but I'm reading Ruth Ben-Ghiat. And it's a combination of all the things that you and I are talking about. There's religious component to it. There's nationalism, but more than anything, there's a willing to use, willingness to use violence, political violence. Do you think uh, Trump's a fascist? I think after January 6th, and given how he handled that, I think at a minimum you can say he has some uncomfortable associations or overlaps with fascism. At a minimum, you could say that. Right. And anybody like Caldera or Brockler or Kaplan say, I'll support Trump if he's the nominee. Then you're supporting a fascist. And and it's horrible. I, I can't believe America's like this. It is disappointing. It is disappointing to me. And as you said, Trumpism is sort of revealed a lot. And a lot of people that I used to think were my allies, I now think are really in the deep end. And at the same time, a lot of people that I used to think of as my opponents, even enemies, I now think of as, if not close allies, but at least we're on the same, sort of on the same page in terms of, hey, maybe rule of law is a good idea. Maybe not, you know, have this idle talk about, hopefully idle, about murdering political opponents. Maybe we ought to expunge those kinds of people from our ranks. Um but I wanted to go back to, I mentioned this this fight between sort of the academic libertarians and the libertarian party that's playing out on Twitter and how they have, the libertarian party, or at least organs of that, have been calling Zelensky a Hitler, a fascist. Right. And how they have taken such a hard alt-right turn within the libertarian party. And there's a lot of discussion about that that I'm familiar with because I know a lot of libertarians and I follow them on social media. And one, and, and then this relates to talking about, well, why are many conservatives voting for Trump even after, even after all that things? Even they'll say, they're saying, oh, even if you're the nominee again, we'll vote for him. How can you say that? And one of the things that the, that the libertarians did to this sort of bleeding heart libertarian is they said, well, you're a socialist, so why should we believe anything you have to say? And, I, and this goes back to our previous discussion of- Are, are you the bleeding heart libertarian? That they're talking about, or somebody else? Uh, yeah, no, it's his name is Matt Zwolinski. Okay, so they're calling him a, a, a commie, a lefty. Yes, and look Which at a all... lot of times when I hear commie, lefty, globalist, is he a Jew too? Right. Yeah, and he's a Jew. And that's uh, I don't know if he is in particular, but all those things do often tend to go together. Okay. Yeah. The so, left. The so left. this is part of the explanation. Is now look, I am concerned also about amassing too much power at the federal level. 
Generally, I think that the federal government spends way too much money, regulates way too many aspects of our lives. In those senses, I am still libertarian leaning. Are they communists? Is Joe Biden a communist? I hear all the time from Republicans. Oh, Joe Biden's a communist. He's a socialist. What do you, what do you mean? He's like Stalin? And that's one of the things that Matt Zelensky said. He's like, you got to be able to, if you can't distinguish between Barack Obama and Joseph Stalin, you are not thinking, you are not living in reality. Okay. So I think that there is a combination of genuine concern with this amassing of too much power in the hands of the federal government, along with this, all this history of, you know, going back to the Birchers of calling all your enemies communists or socialists, whether they are or not, right? Regardless of how tenuous those links are. If I can say Joe Biden is a communist, well, nothing is worse than that. Nothing is worse than Joseph Stalin. So voting for a strong man, Trump, even if he does suspend the constitution, that can't be worse than voting for Joseph Stalin, right? And I think that that's part of the reasoning there. It's like they, they demonize the other side so extensively that it literally rationalizes anything. Okay, our guy takes over and, and abolishes the constitution. Maybe we'll restore it later. That's the hope, right? I mean, let's get real here. If a, if a, if Trump wins and actually did manage to suspend the constitution, are we going to get it back? In these people's imagination, oh, this is a temporary measure until we can restore order, the true constitution. This reminds me a lot of the withering away of the state right. among, among Marxist thoughts. Well, we need this brutal totalitarianism right now because eventually we're going to reach true human liberation and the real human flourishing. Okay, what about this intermediary process? Are we going to be able to get out of that? When, when's the state going to wither away? When is Donald Trump's regime going to wither away back into the rule of just law? It seems like that's a pretty, that's a pretty big bet to make to me and a pretty bad one. Like that, there's not a good history. Let's blow up the system and see if we can put the pieces back later. That's general. That generally does not work out for for the betterment of people in society. But I think that has something to do with it. It's. I have lots of criticisms of Joe Biden and his policies, lots. Okay, but putting him, but this excessive demonization, like he is, like, you know, the Antichrist. I know it. I mean, he's gonna like he's gonna he's gonna ruin the country. It's like we're, what we're talking about. People are marginal reforms. We're talking about programs that Republicans support in principle. We're just talking about like a 2 or 3% difference. I mean, tr look at all the money Trump spent over COVID. We're talking about roughly the same types of programs. Look at, I mean, Republicans are not beating down the doors to re repeal all these welfare programs that they would now worry about if we increase their budget by 1% or 2%. So it's a complete lack. It's, it's a complete lack of perspective. There's a big difference between criticizing the policies of your political opponents and calling them literally the forces of Satan or the forces of communism. I mean, let's get, let's live in reality, people. In fact, I've called for, I think we should have, if the Republican Party is going to survive in this state, and it doesn't look like it's going to me that it's going to beyond sort of a regional, um, beyond some certain regions, we would need something like a reality caucus. Let's actually pay attention to reality. Let's not just accept all these lies and exaggerations because that is what our that's what our team is saying and that's what's going to lead us into power. 
um, you know, we'll see. But, but isn't the reality that there's a lot of racism, misogyny, homophobia involved? And proof is in the pudding. It's not just Joe Biden who will elicit an over-the-top reaction. He's an adult old man. He's got no sense. Yeah, we can see he's old, or maybe he's not at the top of his game, but he's reasonably smart, and he's doing a pretty good job. But then you bring up Kamala Harris, and oh, my God, they won't pronounce her name right, and she's an idiot, this and that. And it goes back to Barack Obama, and I was on daily radio during the rise of Barack Obama, like the guy. There were some misgivings about his associations, right, with Bill Ayers, Bernadette Dorn, Reverend Wright, all legitimate food for thought and consideration. But now, it's so many years later, we know that Barack Obama is not some uh, communist radical. He's a normal father, husband. He wants the best for his children. And he's a decent guy. And yet, you would think that none of that was resolved. And I again look at Peter Boyles and his birther bullshit that he lived on, you know, is uh, Barack Obama really qualified to be president, this and that? And he lived off of that stuff. And it wasn't harmless in retrospect. It was racist. And it set a tone for racism. And let's face it, the part of what uh, people like about the current Republican Party is the racism, is the anti-Semitism. It's disgusting. And where did these thoughts come from? from conservative thought leaders on Denver Trump Radio and then to the extremes of Alex Jones and Steve Bannon with their ubiquitous podcast, Heidi Ganahl goes on it. Did anybody on Denver Trump Radio give her crap for going on Bannon's show? Bannon advertises on Kaplan's show, buy gold through Steve Bannon. Come on, man. Who are these people? Those are the Reverend Wrights, really. They're way out there. Don't you think there's some racism and Jew-hating that's been revealed that binds these people together? I think generally you're right. I think the worst of it is coming from a very small segment. But the problem is not the problem is that the a lot too many mainstream figures are biting their tongues and sitting on their hands. And then you have a Japan who adds into it with I'm, the Jew-hating I mean, and all of that list for me the Republican the Colorado Republican leaders who have said forcefully that Joe Altman needs to be expunged from the Republican movement in Colorado. Give me that list. And where's Dan Kaplis on Joe Altman? Scared to say a word. Where's George Brockler on Joe Altman? Did you know George Brockler brought Joe Altman into 710 Can You Ask My Episode 63? I had him on to question him about that. Let's get to the main event, Joe Altman, because you and I will talk about him. I sat through a hearing the other day in Denver District Courtroom 280. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to do podcasts about it. Joe Altman was able to bring forth big lie about an intercepted Antifa call implicating Dominion. He made that up. And then he went on the Peter Boyle show to amplify it. Randy Corcoran shepherded him around. Randy Corcoran, a Colorado State Party official, on December 5, 2020, he went on George Brockler's show, Joe Altman, and he spun this big lie. And then he was on Corcoran's show right afterwards, who was so impressed. Did you hear the DA of the 18th Judicial District had Joe Altman on? It's fascinating. It's important. That's what George Brockler said. Next thing you know, the Trump family is tweeting about it. 
And Eric Coomer has to leave town, run out of town by this big lie. And I don't like using capital B, capital L, big lie, because that's a Holocaust reference. But I use it here because it was just that serious. And I told Dan Kaplan, I've said it on the air, November 16, 2020, he had on Jenna Ellis, who was saying, stop this deal. Dan, this is all stolen. He, there was no pushback. And I told Kaplan, I texted him, don't go down this road. It's destructive. It's terrible. I had already been kicked off a year before for my bashing of Trump. But I told Dan as a friend, don't go down this road. But they did. And it led to January 6th, which was an atrocity that I still can't get over. You worked in the Capitol, Ari Armstrong. Put all this together for me. Well, you're talking about how some people could still rationalize supporting Trump even now. Well, if you buy into those lies and you really think that the elections themselves are so corrupt, we can't trust them. Well, then why not put in a strong man? I mean, it's basically, that's no worse than what you've ar- we've already done, is the idea, right? Like, it's no worse putting Trump in and suspending the Constitution than electing Joe Biden by the existing voting mechanisms, if that's the line of thought you go down. Which, as you say, is extremely... Like, we are... That sort of effort to put out those lies for political gain. Now, let me say, some people sincerely believe them. I'm not saying that it's not sincerely held beliefs among some people who are delusional, who are making themselves stupid, right? Who are lying to themselves as well as to others. I'm not saying that there's not a certain amount of sincerity in that respect, if you can call lying to yourself a form of sincerity. But this is putting the country on a dangerous precipice. And I think that we'll recover fine. But there's some mistakes that you cannot come back from. And if and it's it's really hard to predict how things are going to go. But putting your eggs in this basket on this kind of risk for short-term political gain, something that could literally cause a civil war, cause a dissolution of our constitutional republic, is so wildly, outrageously irresponsible and immoral. Again, I just I have a hard time relating to the sort of mentality who could make those sorts of claims in the first place and who could, by lack of forceful answer, can rationalize and excuse those kinds of things. And that that to me is the real the real the real problem is not so much the fruit loops, the nutcases who really believe this stuff. Just as with the KKK, right? This is w- another aspect to Goldberg's book that really impressed me. In parts where the KKK was was more successful are the parts where the establishment backed them, the thought leaders. The parts where the KKK wasn't as successful are the parts of the state where good people stood up and told the truth. And is it hard to do with the time sometimes when all your friends are saying something different? Yeah, and you know very well, you know better than me, in fact, how hard that can be. But by God, at some point, you have to have some self-respect and some love of country that makes you want to do the right thing. And that's the big problem to me, is the people who 100 years ago or today are willing to sit by and not call out their friends and allies when they're going down these very dark paths. I totally agree. And like John Caldera, 
how cool would it be if he took his platform and said, Lauren Boebert, you've gone too far. You're out of line. Or if George Brockler stood up and said, you know, this is bullshit, what Trump is doing. And sometimes he pretends to go that direction, but he'll back Boebert too. And Boebert is a good example because she's fully MAGA. And I look at Ross Kaminsky and I think I know these guys. And I think, Ross, you have so much more in common with Adam Frisch. You're both currency traders. You have a similar ethic. You have families. You understand that uh, there's this, there's that. Why would you go with a Christian nationalist like Lauren Boebert? And I think maybe he wants to keep his job at KOA on conservative radio. And then I think about George Brockler, who served in the military, wonderful family guy. I think about Adam Kinzinger who served in the military. Similar background. I had Amber McReynolds sitting here, and she knew Adam Kinziger and vouched for what a great guy he is. And boy, does he impress me. A guy like you who said, no, I'm not down with this. I'm moving away. Why doesn't George Brockler like Adam Kinziger? And then I look at my former pal, Dan Kaplis, and I think about Liz Cheney and how they were politically aligned, and he would have referred to her as a hero. Her father, too, and now he thinks she's a traitor. And I think, no, she's on the right side. Why won't the Republicans stand up? Why is it only Cheney and Kinzinger? Isn't that a damning indictment out of the whole House of Representatives? What do you make of that and what I just said? Well, it is worth noting, I think, the courage of Liz Cheney. Whatever you might think about her policy views, her courage in calling out Trumpism, I think, is something notable, um, something very courageous. I wrote about Boebert and her handling of January 6th at that time. I thought her stance and actions were inexcusable, unforgivable, frankly. I think she's a dangerous person. I think she's fundamentally unserious person at a certain level, but dangerous, like serious in the sense that she's dangerous. Um, like she's the bull in the China shop. Um, I'm really sad that Don Corum, a very decent guy, did not take her out, did not beat her in the primary. I'm very sad that then the Democrat didn't win. Uh, imagine this, right? I think she, last I checked, she won by something like 600 votes, an extremely thin margin, which surprised me. I thought it'd be five to 10% on of victory. And then what did, Bober, what did the team Republican ask the Democrat to do? He said, oh, well, forego the mandatory recount. What would have happened if Boebert would have been behind by five, 600 votes? We all know that she would not be foregoing the mandatory recount, right? Her supporters would be crying, raising havoc. Oh my God, we got to look at all the, look for all the fraud and all the Boebert votes that were thrown in the trash or whatever happened or, you know, glitched in the system. There's, we all, we all know this, right? right. This is obvious. And yet the Republicans pretend like they're, they're just not blatant hypocrites Hypocrites on that score, Who the ones who take that line. Right, right? let's go back to January 6th, because that affected me deeply. And I've already circled the date, December 21st, for when they're going to have their last hearing. I, I, I've been glued to the TV. I want to know everything, and I want indictments to follow. I think the rule of law is teetering without justice for the people who organized January 6th, and I'm sure that includes Donald Trump, and I'm pretty sure that Lauren Boebert was involved. 
What do you think about my thesis that America won't be running right until we really have accountability for January 6th? Generally, I agree with you. I'm glad that there has been strong action taken against many of the participants. I mean, I don't, I don't even know the count, but a number of people associated have been criminally convicted, sentenced to prison. This is good. Notice the Republican reaction to this in some quarters. They're trying to excuse these people saying, oh my God, they're being treated so terribly. Like they're, they're all against any any criminal justice reform. They're all, oh yeah, we're going to be hard on the criminals right. unless it's their people on January 6th. Then right. it's like, oh my God, we need to let them out and um, not hold them accountable. So I will recognize that there is some debate as to, uh, look, it is. there's no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump riled those people up and in essence directed them to attack the Capitol. This is obvious. But as you know, so like, um, what's what's the criminal? Like, are you going to convict somebody of a crime for riling, riling somebody up? Where is that line crossed? I'm not an attorney, and I recognize that there are some difficult cases. So I just don't, I don't know. Is the I want to know what fact. happened at the Willard Hotel. You know, Joe Altman was there in D.C. that day. I want to know every detail about Rudy and Eastman I, I want people, the lawyers especially, to be held accountable, the Eastmans, even the Jenna Ellis of the world. I, I want everybody who, because this was not a small little deal. This was something that will be in the history books 100 years from now. Don't you agree? Uh, certainly. I think the core issue is not whether Donald Trump does prison time. I think the core issue is whether he is held morally culpable. Yes, for that event and the events leading up to it and then the aftermath. And he is still to this day saying he ought to be restored as the president because the election was fraudulent. And let's, and by God, even if we need to suspend parts of the constitution to do it, then so be it. That's Here's what the, he's still saying. Yeah, I know. He's, he's Michigan. He's nuts. And he uh, still has not been rejected, but I think it's coming. And let's end on a happy note because the midterms happened and rescued America. Don't you agree? Yeah, I've never been so happy for so many Democrats to win in my life. Right. Because I agree with you. I've never been really a Republican. I used to be a Democrat, left them a long time ago. I like being unaffiliated. But right now, there's only two political sides. You're either with Trump or you are against him. You and I are against him. And honestly, as you said, I'll make common cause with just about anybody on our side, right? Because that's the one issue. So I was thrilled to see Democrats elected, and, and maybe not on a local level, right? You know, in Denver, they could go way too far left, and you and I will agree on that. But the civil war that I thought might be coming is now going to be a Republican civil war. And I hope the anti-MAGA side wins. And I can foresee a day when I think through rose-colored glasses that Republicans will be right with you and me wanting a third microphone to say, lock him up. Can you envision that day when Republicans say, lock him up? I would like to think that there is a day coming when the adults in the Republican Party will take, say, this is our moment. We're going to make stand up and express our beliefs. Unfortunately, I mean, they've had so many opportunities at this point to stand up against the, let's say, extremists, let's say the pro-violence, the conspiracy-mongering wing of their party. 
It's like, how many chances do you need, people? I mean, every 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 day that goes by and you don't say something is a lost opportunity. So I I, I would like to end on your happy note. Um, but where where are you? If you're a Republican in Colorado who believes in the rule of just law, who believes in civil discourse, who believes in treating our political opponents respectfully and not demonizing them, where are you? Where is your movement? I mean... Where are you after he dines with Ye and Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago? And while he's walking them out, they're posing for pictures. Kanye West, virulent anti-Semite, guest of honor, Thanksgiving Day, Mar-a-Lago, allowed to bring his neo-Nazi friend, Nick Fuentes, who has still not been uh, addressed by Donald Trump, other than I didn't know the guy was going to show up, which is bullshit. I did shows on him three years ago. Michelle Malkin hung up on me when I tried to question her about Nick Fuentes. Come on, man. How... how how can any decent Republican still stay with this guy after that dinner party? And then followed up a week later with his social media tweet, we're going to get rid of the Constitution. I mean, come on. At least if you want to look for a good sign, at least there has been more pushback on those two issues than I have seen previously. To me, it's like day late, dollar short um, type of reaction and still not nearly strong enough. But at least there's some hint that some people are regaining their senses and self-respect, maybe. Who was it like Byron York came off the Trump train, maybe another person or two. And I say better late than never, because I didn't really jump off till Charlottesville, which was way late. Like how much smarter you were. Here's what I'm worried about. And I said we're going to end on a happy note, but I'm worried that I'm going to miss you. Not just because the podcast's almost over, but you're a constant Twitter presence. And I wrote about it in my Colorado Sun column. I'm going to hang on Twitter for a while, but I'm looking for alternatives. And I've sized up Elon Musk, who really wasn't on my radar. And I judge him to be a real bad guy. And I'm worried about it. Twitter has become a habit for me, I bet for you. Are you worried about Twitter? I am. It's an extraordinarily important source of news and discussion. So I don't see a vibrant alternative to Twitter coming to the fore at this point. Um, my hope is that the problems with Twitter work themselves out. Uh, maybe, I don't know. My my What I wish would happen is Musk would just sell it. <laughs> but I, right. So I don't know. I can't, but what do you I make can't... of Musk? What's motivating him now? He says he'll support Ron DeSantis, who looks like a puffed up maggot Trumpian type. I need to study him further. Nobody could be that bad. At least he's got an education. But Elon Musk, back to him. I kind of look at the world. Is this guy a Jew hater? And I'm worried that he is. And he did the same thing that I disqualified Trump for when he retweeted that Pelosi bullshit. You know, piling mm. on a guy, an 82-year-old who just had a home invasion, hit in the head with a hammer, and you're going to make it some gay sex romp in San Francisco? I thought that was incredibly irresponsible. I agree. I think he's making some big mistakes. I think it was a mistake for him to buy Twitter. I think he should be quiet and run his other businesses, which are important businesses, which is why I do have like a love-hate relationship toward Musk, because I think both Tesla 
and SpaceX have been important companies in the history, in the progression of American industrial um, development. Um, but yeah, on the Twitter side, I, I just, I don't know what he's doing, honestly. Um, but let me just say, right, one alternative to Twitter is the rise of Substack, which is basically a return to blogging. But one nice thing about Substack is you can you sign up via email, so you can stay in touch with certain individuals that way. So you're welcome to go to Colorado Pickaxe on Substack, and people can subscribe to my thing there and at least keep track of what I'm reading and looking at. Um, but yeah, other, you can still find me on Twitter, and I, I just you know I can't do anything about the big problems of Twitter. All I can do is carve out my little uh, social network there and do the best I can. Substack is great. And you are a fantastic writer. How did you learn to write like that? For example, that 5,000 words, how many words was it about Jeff Hunt? And do you do it in one sitting? How, how long does something like that take you? That one I wrote over a couple of days. I stayed up until two in the morning the previous night and then finished it up uh, the day I published it. Um, so thank you anyway. I appreciate that. You're I a mean, magnificent writer. And uh, I agree about Substack. Is that profitable? How does it work out? I know some people are making a nice living at it, but how is it for you? Yes, yeah, some people on Substack, Substack do quite well. You know, look, I'm on the long tail. You might have heard of the long tail theory of economics. Some people do very, very well. There's many, many more people who do much less well. I'm on the long tail. But it I don't do Substack primarily to make a lot of money, though. Hey, people are willing to, are ha I'm happy for people to financially subscribe as well. You can get all my stuff there for free. I release it for free without a paywall. Um, but I'm doing it more for, I mean, look, to me, Colorado politics is all in or all out. It's so time consuming to track all the news and all the figures and all the players, which I do, you know, I cover, I, I'm able to read maybe 10% of what I would like to be reading about that. But it's it's so it's all consuming in a way that I have to be keep keep doing it, even though you know it's it's a part time gig for me, still. But I at least it's constant effort, and so Substack is a way for me to keep my thoughts organized and write the articles that I think are important that I know I can't get published anywhere else, um, and I can publish quickly. And uh, it's either that or just get out of Colorado politics altogether. Well, you are a fantastic writer, and then the podcast. How often do you do it, and what? What determines that? Not often enough. I mean, I'm, you know, my ham family homeschools. I have, I, I just feel it's been been a very busy year for me and my family. Um, but whenever I can. So I have several planned. There's some, and one, one thing I like to do is take on guests who are not doing the podcast circuit, right? They're, they don't have the best-selling books, maybe books that are older, like Goldberg. Like there's a medical doctor named Mel Connor. Um, who's written a lot about politics and he has a book out about Jewish history. Um, and he has a book out on evolutionary theory from 20 years ago. And so, but it's, it's very long. So I, need to, you know, I have to, speaking of reading books, I have to find the time to finish the book so I can prep and then do a podcast. Interview, Podcasts so. are great though. See, I know so much more about you and uh, you just talked about Jewish history and that brings us back to Ayn Rand. And I guess part of my beef with her is that she stopped wanting to be a Jew. And she was, um, you asked about my religiosity, which is kind of in the middle. There are a lot of people way more religious than me, but I go to Shul on the high holidays, and I respect it. And this is what I like, people who are respectful of religion. 
And to me, she got contemptuous of it. And if every Jewish person acted like Ayn Rand, there wouldn't be any more Jewish people, right? And so that's sort of a self-preservation thing that Jewish people think about that maybe hasn't struck you about Ayn Rand. She was undeniably smart, and she could have used a good editor. She, she went on a little too long, but she was smart. I read a book about her upbringing, right? Her dad was a pharmacist, had a drugstore, and then when they thought they were leading a great revolution, which they did, but then it got hijacked by Lenin, and soon people were moving into her house. Hey, your house is too big. You have to have a bunch of other families. So I loved her upbringing. They put her on a boat, sent her to America. She saw New York, thought it was great. But then I just think she took it to a, an unhappy level. You're the expert on Ayn Rand. I just know a snippet about her. But why has she fascinated you so much? I don't think her move was so much anti-Jewish as simply anti-religion. And it wasn't so much that she was anti-religion. She was just an atheist. So to her, it wasn't that important as a part of her. It wasn't an important part of life. Um, Maybe that's what bothered me, her atheism. Because to me, being an agnostic makes more sense. But that's my bias. Keep going. But I think at the time she was writing, religion didn't was wasn't having it wasn't this constant source of public discussion, right? People weren't trying to inject it into politics the way that they mm-hmm. are today. So, on a personal level, I think she largely ignored it. Now, I think that she was. I agree with her in certain respects in that religion can be very dangerous. Yes, and I think that there is a way that in which you can take faith at the level of knowledge as being belief without reason. Um, And I know that it has different meanings in different contexts and that that generally is not the way to approach life, right? We should try to, again, be oriented toward reality. And people can can do and have done a lot of things um, based on their faithful beliefs. Now, so, you know, we might have some disagreements on... Well, here's one thing. I, I recognize how important the, the, so, the social and cultural trappings of religion are to people. And this is one place where atheists te- tend to fall down, because partly because there are so few atheists, right? There aren't these kinds of social movements. And people find an enor- enormous um, meaning in life by becoming parts of these communities, which is very healthy in many respects. Um, if you're whatever denomination, mainstream, let's say major denomination of Christianity, Catholic, or take your pick of the recognizable Protestant lines, you can move anywhere in the country, any major city in the country, and immediately find a network of people who will take you in and make you part of their community. Which is one reason why the Mormons are so tight-knit and have such tight community and have such vibrant charity networks. If you're a Mormon living in Utah, you are not going to go hungry, right? You're going to be taken care of. And there's a lot of aspects to that that I appreciate. And I and I think you're right. I think Rand, I think there's certain aspects of social life that Rand didn't fully appreciate. Though that can be overstated too. Um, but in my mind, right, I want to separate out those sorts of the pot, like the positive side of religion, the social side, the let's take care of people side, 
you know, let's, let's be civil to people. I mean, again, I like the imagery of humans are created in God's image because what that tells us is that you are substantially like me. Okay, I just raised Protestant. You're raised Jewish. We're the same in an important respect. You're black, I'm white, whatever. You're gay, I'm hetero, whatever. We're all human beings in that sense. And that's a that's a profoundly important insight. Um, so I would personally separate out the theology, the metaphysics of that from the social, the social aspects of it, um, which is probably not going to make you happy, right? No, um, it's all right. And, and it comes down to how do you live your own life? And I remember Michael Bennett, whose mother was born in the Warsaw ghetto or escaped, and uh, the Kledgeman family, as I recall. And then they married the Bennetts, who were Episcopalian. And when Michael Bennett was first asked after he got a big job, appointed by Bill Ritter, and now he's the longest-serving senator, they said, well, your mother was Jewish, your father was Episcopalian, what about you? And he said, I have great uh, admiration for both sides of my family, which is like, well, well, what are you? And, and the better question, what I'll ask you, if it's not too personal, you have a seven-year-old how do you raise your seven-year-old? What are you teaching him about religion, if anything, if I can be so personal? Yeah, sure, because we've had a lot of discussions about this, me and my wife, and us and our son. And our approach is basically to be very straightforward with him about the history of religions. So we have, they're called the Dolores Books of Mythology. There's one on Norse mythology, and then some other, other veins of mythology. So my basic strategy is to teach him about religions generally, not just one religion. And, you know, he's seven, so there's a lot left to do in that in that vein. But, you know, we've, we have a history book. We've read some of the history, at least the founding history of Islam and those stories, which can be in, very inspiring in, in, in respects. Like one thing that struck me in part of our reading was how strong the, some of the early Muslim women, or some of the women were in that early movement, and how powerful they were and in helping to shape that movement. Um, you know, so basically give him an education of religious history and how important that's been in hum human history. Now, that's a separate discussion of the metaphysical question. You know, what is the nature of reality? <laughs> okay. So I'm, what I try to tell him is that I want, I'm going to straightforwardly tell him what I think. And I'm also going to try to impress upon him that you shouldn't just believe what your parents think, right? You should try to investigate things for yourself. So we'll see. He's seven. So I'm trying to make him into one of these, you know, critical thinkers. We'll see how that works out in the long run. I bet it will. And think of the world he'll grow up in. I just say being Jewish and my wife's Jewish. So it's, it's just easy. Do you know what I mean? We're not teaching Islamic history or even Christian history. And you'd be surprised in Hebrew school how little you learn about Jesus. I mean, it's just not part of the curriculum. But what's part of the world is our kids grow up, and my kids are a little older. But you turn me on. You have a tremendous blog, too, and artificial intelligence. Where are we going with that? And you sent me Sermon on the Mount as interpreted by AI through the thought process of Ayn Rand, and it blew me away. Tell everybody about that. Well, the big story, of course, is... The they've been developing these new AI 
search engines that can answer pretty detailed questions. And most people have been blown away by how good and detailed and human sounding they often sound. Not always. You can trip them up if you're very clever about it, but they're very, very good. And along those lines, right? Recent, I believe it was in Colorado. Somebody entered an art contest. Yes. And they entered an AI generated piece of art, which won some award. Yes. And I thought it was a very lovely piece of art. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, is AI generated? How do we look at this? Um, it's like that so, Hank Brown signature. It's a huge story, of course. Some people, I, I don't know how it's going to play. I, I think it personally it's going to be very profound because I think it's going to make all kinds of things extraordinarily easier. So here's an example, okay? One thing I did with my seven-year-old, we watched a nature museum, Denver Nature Museum, presentation online about their imaging of fossils. And he, the fellow was holding up a 3D model, 3D printed of a fossil that they had see, that they had scanned. And he said it took him like 3,000 person hours to generate this model. And so one thing I was thinking of, well, yeah, it still takes a lot of time just to run the physical equipment, okay? And it, that that is all time consuming. But the, the computer aspect of that, taking all these slices of imagery and putting them together, because he said he had to literally label which bone is which in each of thousands of slices of this imagery. And so I'm thinking, okay, it's not going to be that long until you just ask your AI program to do that for right. you. And then, you know, you wait half an hour or whatever, and then you come back and it's done. Instead of 3,000 person hours to put these together. I have a friend who's a radiologist. AI is already coming into, into radiology because these, you know, these algorithms are becoming very clever at recognizing, well, what's cancerous, what's just like a scar tissue or whatever. Um, so now we're looking at, well, how well can AI write? I think it's going to be, I, I predicted it would be two weeks until we are, people submit letters to the editor in op-eds that have been AI generated and we won't even know it. So we're going to start to read things and we won't even know <laughs> that they're AI, I think in some cases. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, um, how it becomes a tool, how it becomes a tool of misinformation. I mean, we could have a, a, a strongman figure who's not even a real person at some point, right? Theoretically. Right. Um, Speaking of tools, I like the name of your substack, Colorado Pickaxe. That's a tool. What's the etymology of that? Well, that's part of the state seal, of course. Yes. And we have a big well, history. Well, tell us about it. I, I didn't really realize that. Uh, tell us how that became part of the state seal. Oh my because gosh. of the mining? Yeah, we have a, hu a huge history of mining. There's mining museums. There's one in Leadville. Mm -hmm. um, huge part of Colorado history. So what I say is I'm like, I forget how it, the exact phrase I'm picking out the news of the day. You know, it's like a metaphor for me sifting through the news and picking out the, the gems, the veins of gold or whatever. Um, now, I, I don't know if you like this or not. So... The motto of our honor state seal is, um, I don't know Latin, so I'm trying to remember this, but it, the English translation is nothing without the divine. The idea is we do everything under God's prominence. Well, I changed mine to be the English translation is nothing without reason. So I'm trying to very forcefully say, look, I'm trying to look at the world for what it is, use reason to understand the world. Um, you know, so People who are very religious aren't going to like that aspect of it. And but, then the name of your podcast, Self and Society? Yeah, that's, that's another thing I do. And I run a podcast and write an occasional article. As I said, I'm behind. How did you come up with that name? So part of this is my reaction to Ayn Rand. And I think she's onto something important in her individualism. We're each 
individuals. We each have our own values. We each experience and feel the world on our own. If I hurt you, if I punch you in the arm, you feel it. Not somebody, you know, in Asia doesn't feel it. You feel it. So I think there's an important part. Important parts of our individualism are true. We're, we have rights as individuals. But I also think that it's also true that we are social creatures. We spent a long, long time evolving in tight-knit social groups. We're mammals. Mammals are inherently social creatures. Um, this is it. So our big brains are a big reason why we're so social. Because humans come out of the womb very undeveloped. Because if we develop more, we would not fit out. We would not come out, right? We would get stuck. So humans come out very undeveloped, which requires extraordinary parental care, much longer than most other mammals for in terms of period of time. What does this mean? This means there's very, very strong mother-child attachments, parental attachments, father-child attachments. And then there's a, there's a biologist named Hurdy, Sarah Blaffer Hurdy. She has books on motherhood, and she has this term called alloparent. And it's the idea that it's sort of like a Hillary Clinton takes a village idea that it really is true that humans tend to have a lot of community social social networks to help help raise children. Grandparents, our son loves spending time with his grandparents. This is part of that all parent idea. So I'm trying to get at this idea that yes, we are ourselves, we're individuals, our values matter. We shouldn't be pushed into these political collectives where the individual can be sacrificed for the quote greater good. That's important. And then the other side, it's also important to recognize that we are built to be parts of social networks. Other people, at least some other people are inherently very strongly valuable to us. Naturally, we can extend these sympathies. You've heard of the, uh, the Peter Singer idea that we expand our circle of, of empathy. So there is a sense in which I can care about how people in Afghanistan or Ukraine, um, or North Korea or Iran are doing, and I can feel bad that they're doing badly. And I think there's something important about that. And so I'm trying to capture both aspects of that. Our, our self is important. The, self, the human being, the individual human being is important. And the human social networks and broader society are also important. So how do those, how do those, how does a person fit into society, self and society? That's the idea. Love that. And your primary focus, as is mine, I try to get national guests, so do you. But I think you and I care about what happens in Colorado. We're both born and bred here, different parts of this state. But I'm not going to get too emotional about North Korea. I can start getting worked up about Ukraine because I think that that's a, just it, – it, it, Putin is like Hitler. And we need to be on this side of Zelensky. So I can get emotional too. But I try to keep it closer to home. So do you. And I think your seven-year-old is so lucky to have you as a father. 40 years from now, when he's 47, and he's God willing, living in Colorado, what, what do you see for the future 40 years from now? Where will we be? I think I do. I am on net optimistic about the future. I think that we have seen some tremendous technological advances. For example, the COVID vaccination. Yes. We are seeing some big advances like AI. Yes. A lot of people are very scared of AI. I'm more optimistic. I think it's going to unleash human potential and human creativity to previously untold levels. I do think we're going to get through this transition to cleaner energy 
Whether that's primarily solar or primarily nuclear or some combination thereof, I think it's going to happen over the next few decades. So I think the world in 40 years is going to be a remarkably good place. And in many respects, in terms of material prosperity, um, environmental health, these kinds of things, I think it's going to be a much better place for him to live in. I think we have to get through some tough times. We have to not, we have to not nuke ourselves into oblivion. We have to not let strongman politics tear down our civilizations and the institutions by which humans thrive as a, as a community. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I think, I think it's going to be a great world. I think that we have to, I think that the world in the future determines to lar in large part on the decisions we make today, which is one reason why I am so keen on people being a little more self-reflective and trying harder to make the right calls and not excuse your friends when they're going off the rails. That's a beautiful way to end it. I like that optimism. I love your passion for Colorado. I can't thank you enough for giving me so much time. Hell of an interview, Ari Armstrong. Best of luck to you. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your work. You obviously spend a lot of time making your show happen, um, despite a lot of opposition. And so I appreciate that. And that's a huge, a huge part of the Colorado intellectual scene. I do believe, look, I can't do anything about North Korea. I can do something locally and a lot of people can. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate um, the work that you do and that other people in Colorado are doing. All right, everybody keep up with Ari Armstrong. I'm still on Twitter at Craig's Colorado, and we'll be there for a while. Who knows what happens next, but maybe 40 years from now, our kids will sit around and they can listen to it best, but maybe they can listen to this podcast and say, listen to what our old men were saying back in December 2022. Thank you, Ari. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me on. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you.
have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, did I tell you that's a great show? How about that, Dave Gunders? Isn't that a perfect song to start our show? What a great relationship I have with him. I do have a birthday coming up this week. It's on the 16th. So I'll see you on the 17th, God willing. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend. Thank you, Ari Armstrong. You were magnificent. Episode 126, In the Bank. Subscribe, five stars. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.